everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. We live in a culture where buzzer beater players get all the glory. Rarely is credit given to the players who set the stage for that shot even to take place. Not in the world of leadership coach Jamie Beckler, though. He doesn't believe in a system where the concept of team is constantly referenced, but rarely acknowledged. This is where balance and cohesion are really developed. His time spent instilling philosophies like this in the high school, college, and pro levels are all the proof you need of its success. Here it is, episode 503. How you doing? Man, I'm doing well. Appreciate you guys having me. Yeah, thanks oh, for coming yeah. on. Yeah, hey, I, I want to apologize right from the start that I'm not as buff and cool as all the other guests that you've had. Oh, you know, no, I'm not, some I'm, real I'm not ripped and Okay, so I'll fit right in. Yeah, you'll be fine. Yeah. But awesome. your experience, your ability to speak well, all of that trumps your lack of bicep. <laughs> Hey, I got some biceps. It's just what's over top of it. That's the problem. Uh, and that's called a sweatshirt. 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 That's yeah. right. Don't make me rip this fucking sweatshirt off and start smashing people. That's what I like to go with. Man, my kid saw some pictures of me when I was a college athlete the other day, my fourth grader. And he was like, what happened to you, daddy? I said, Burned. you, you. <laughs> yeah, you guys suck the life rate out of me. You. I know. You and your mom. Terrible. That will happen. That's right. Well, well I mean, the podcast training. has already began, so... Yeah, got to get on that training train. Yeah. No, I mean, it's... Uh, the dad bod is real. I mean, you know, we deal with it all the time on our Power Athlete programs. You know, uh, I work a job. I have a young kids. I have a wife. I have all this other stuff. I'm a shell of my former self. How do I reclaim my... Collegiate um, physique. Well, my physique. Just how do I start not feeling like... The dad, I mean, and, and uh, my little boy is, is five. I got twin girls that are nine. And so we go to Saturdays for baseball and uh, I take them. And some of these dads are in such bad shape. I want to go over and have like an intervention uh. and be like, hey, bud, just come. Let's let's go get in the car and talk a little bit and then just read him the fucking riot act. But yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, last week I uh, I started not drinking pop again. So, uh, so move. I've gone what an, a week and a half now uh, without drinking pop. <laughs> I I think I've gained two pounds. No, um, pop. Are you you from like Pittsburgh area? No, Minnesota I, is usually a pop I, reference. I, originally from Michigan, I yep. now live in uh, Ohio, Akron, Ohio. I, I did live in Texas, and everything there was Coke. That's right. I, I was about to to add that in there. Yeah, and yeah. I didn't like Coke, and they were like, "Well, you don't have to have a Coke." And I'm like, "You just said, do I want a Coke?" And well, I said, but no. In, in Ohio, I guess Coke means Coke. Yeah, Coke means Yeah, because, I mean, isn't that like the drug capital of like where all the drugs and methamphetamine and all the crazy like. Uh, oh, Coke uh, means. So so there's. Uh, Coke. Uh, when I flew into Cleveland and then went to Canton, what was this two years ago for Tony Gonzalez's Hall of Fame deal? There's all these signs that are like, only you can stop trafficking, only you can stop methamphetamine. And like the drive, you're like all of these fucking signs. And so I'm like, my brother was rolling and I like pulled up my phone and I'm like, oh, this is like the meth kind of super highway uh, of like, uh, you know, and then also for like uh, um, abductions and like uh, uh, trafficking of humans, like all run through that part of the country. Well, it's all these signs. Yeah, just it's just a friendly PSA. Yeah. Um, But but this lovely lady in Texas was not offering me the uh, powdered substance of Coke. She was uh, offering me. You sure about that, coach? I I am am pretty sure. uh, 
there was nothing in her refrigerator, but she had Sprite Coke and she had Dr. Pepper Coke and she had Mountain Dew Coke. So if they say, so, hey, do you want a Coke? You're like, yeah, I'll take a Sprite. Yes. Is, yeah, that's that evident. Kind of I, and I did not know that. And um, Mr. Pibb is also very Ms. big here. Ms. Uh, Mr. What about RC Cola? RC. What are we, farmers? So <laughs> what's, what's hilarious is when we were kids, um, I think what my parents did is because we wanted to drink soda or whatnot. So they bought like RC Cola. And it was so terrible yeah. that we never touched it. That's a good move. And then, uh, and then I remember my mom would like on occasion get like, uh, what are they, like uh, Orange Crush? Yeah. And we would absolutely slay those. Like, like we would just cra- like crush one of those a day. And then the best was, uh, and this is really bad, but like if you could find vanilla ice cream and put an Orange Crush on top of it and everything would car- like, like, uh, freeze up and caramelize, oh my God, that was so good. Like a creamsicle. Yeah, it oh, was. Uh, yeah, that was like a, a a summer treat for us. Now I think about it, my kids would be like, "What is this bougie shit? What are you a bunch of hillbillies?" <laughs> so Got so anyways chocolate. so anyways I'm a I'm a week and a half into no pop, so I haven't tasted the sweet nectar of carbonation or or sugary substance in a Do you week. Drink and coffee? I don't need that. Yeah. Do you drink coffee? No, I, I don't drink coffee. Um, so uh, but I went I went five years without it. My, my senior year of high school and then four years of college, I never drank any carbonation whatsoever. And that would include uh, adult beverages. So wow. uh, I never had carbonation. And it's amazing. I was actually a good athlete then, too. So, so what did you uh, drink? Just like vodka, bourbon, straight no, tequila? <laughs> no, I just – no, straight straight Gatorade. You know, just pretty much Michael Jordan diet, Gatorade and Wheaties. You know, just put big bowl of Wheaties, pour some Gatorade in, and I feel like Michael Jordan. Well, what's what's interesting on that is if you look at the total – sugar amount in Gatorade, it's comparable to a soda. So yeah. then you would just be assuming that the carbonation was, you know, something that the devil cooked up. Well, it's carbonations. Yeah. And, and, but electrolytes, electrolytes, that's what I rationalize. It's all about electrolytes. Ah. It's like, have you watched, uh, well, have you watched uh, Idi- Idiocracy? Yeah, no, I, I was going to say, this is, yeah. uh, <laughs> I, I appreciate your train of thought, but it's, uh, it's rooted in like 13-year-old uh, like, like on-the-bus science where you're like, hey, man, I heard if you just drink Gatorade, it's better than drinking soda. And then you're like, well, the sugar content's technically the same. They both got orange six in it. Well, John, that's an excellent transition to our guest and the author of The Bus Trip. <laughs> Ooh, I'm in. A fable on leadership, and he's also a leadership playbook author and an awesome podcast. Jamie, I was able to catch a few episodes. Success is a choice. I appreciate that. Appreciate yeah, the why, intro. Why don't we take I a love, minute? I, I love that. I mean, as much as you say it's a good podcast, man, you just you just nailed it with that transition from from 13-year-old bus trip Texas kids. transitions are pretty awkward. That was good. Uh, That's they why just have funny. been for years. I mean, uh, you know, it, <laughs> all, all of your transitions, I mean, more awkward than yeah. Caitlyn Jenner. Hey, yo, uh, I, I like to talk coming. about Burn band is but off. But for the most part, that was actually pretty smooth. I... I I didn't even see you have to, you know, go in there and do it, but it was oh, good. It was I was smooth. reaching for something. Oh, it was good. And and our, and so good that our guest actually complimented you, so kudos to him. Yes, John. You and laid, I think that's the first time I've ever used the word kudos in yes, my entire life. You provided the alley, and I put it in the hoop. Mm, boom. As a former basketball coach, what do you think of that transition? Well, that's kind of a pun in a little bit. I don't know. Way. I don't know what yeah, I'm doing. The, the, the alley-oop. The alley-oop. And, and for those of people... Those uh, people watching and listen that have watched Semi Pro with Jackie Moon, you would know where the alley oop started. Mm. Uh, 
So uh, odd story. My uh, my one daughter plays basketball, and so two days a week, and then she has uh, like a kind of a skills camp on Saturdays at like three. And the one of the dudes that runs it is straight up trying to pull off the Jackie Moon. So he's wearing like real tight sweatpants. He's kind of like a, the shirt's a little ill fitting, hair completely all curly with with a headband holding it down. And the first time I walked in, I was I like looked at my wife. I'm like, so Jackie Moon's one of their coaches, and she's like, who's Jackie Moon? I like pulled it up on my phone, and she's like, oh god, you think he's doing that on purpose? I'm like, he has to be. Nobody looks in the mirror and is like, yeah, this looks good. I mean, he's like, I'm gonna fuck with people. I'm gonna go Jackie well, Moon. Youth sport coaches, they gotta have fun and make fun of themselves. Well, it's good because he's pretty funny because the other dude is like serious, like he's doing brain surgery. He's out there like fucking dressing the kids down and like making them. I mean, it's fucking great. I'm like, you hey, guys are like bad cop, good cop. Who doesn't want to get tropical and finish in fourth place? <laughs> yeah. Who doesn't? Well, Jamie, lead us off with, with an intro, man. You, you've had a, a very storied career up, down, around, man. And it's, it's something to be noted before we get into talking about leadership and getting, getting knitting dirty with it. Yeah, I was a, uh, uh, I played all the sports growing up. I uh, went to college, played a couple of different sports, played football, basketball, and ran track in college at different times. And uh, then I was a college basketball coach for about 20 years, coached both men and women. And then I was a high school athletic director for a couple of years in Indiana at a uh, school that had the fifth largest gymnasium in the country, seated over 7,000 people for high school. And nobody had won more boys basketball titles than the school I was at. So, uh, you know, you think Indiana basketball and and I was at pretty much one of the premier schools for basketball. And then the last four years, I've been a, uh, a leadership uh, trainer, developer, uh, consultant, work with uh, high school teams, college teams and professional teams. And uh, I host, a, as you mentioned earlier, host the Success is a Choice podcast where we have variety of guests. Uh, I think one week we had like a pastor and the next week we had someone from the Pussycat Dolls. Uh, we've had Phil Helmuth, poker player. We've had coaches, business people, people from Shark Tank. So we're all across the board there. And then uh, I've written a few books as well. Yeah, I, 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 live in, I live in Akron, Ohio. I have a wife and a kid. And uh, that's pretty much everything about me. Man, the only thing I know about uh, um, Indiana basketball is uh, Hoosiers. Well, Hoosiers, but also, you know, where uh, Larry Bird, uh, French Lick, Indiana. So, oh, yeah. So, that's all Are I the know. stories true? Are the stories true? About uh, uh, Hoosiers? Indiana ba- uh, high school oh. basketball. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And now it's not as big of a deal as it used to be, you know, where the whole town would shut down. And essentially, that's when you could rob anything in town because everybody's at the game. It's not quite that. Uh, anymore, but it, it's still a huge deal. It's like Texas football. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just a, it's a huge deal. And, uh, you know, we didn't, we didn't sell out our, our arena 7,000, a little over 7,000 is what it fit. And we never had that many, but, uh, but it was still, it was still a pretty cool experience. Mm. Yeah. No, the, uh, I'm from California. We've been out here in Texas for a little over four years and, uh, in California, like the best high school football teams are usually at private schools. So you got like modern day, um, you have, uh, what's the big one? Uh, De La Salle up North and like these huge, uh, like private schools just, you know, pull in all these kids and are just kind of powerhouses exact opposite here in Texas where it's the public school, like this area, Lake Travis that we're in, like they, you know, play for like the national championship every year. They have like 200 kids go out for a high school football team. Uh-huh. And, uh, I mean, kids go and play out of the NFL and it's just a major feeder. So it's yeah, pretty Baker, interesting. Baker Mayfield attended. Oh yeah. yeah. Well, oh, it's, yeah, it's, it's, like it's, Travis guy. 
and it's very similar with your with your football stadiums compared to Indiana basketball gyms. Uh, nine out of the top eleven uh, sized basketball gyms in the world are in Indiana. Uh, wow. You know, I would uh, I don't know what the stat is for football stadiums, but I would imagine most of them are for high school are in Texas. I mean, it's a, like an arms race with those with those stadiums. Oh yeah, no, I mean they'll they'll get. <laughs> 20,000 people to a high yeah, school the, football game. My school district, Katie, west of Houston, also has a co- competition for the state championship, but they have a bigger TV screen than the Houston Texans. So the professional team within the city, my high school school district, so all the, the school district teams play there versus like a single school, has a bigger television, but it's also the home of the Texas High School Museum, mm. sports museum. So that's, uh, that's part of it, just show off and flex. Mm-hmm. on everybody nice uh well I, i'd love to dive into leadership man a lot of people there are so many leadership books out there what motivated you to then hell, hell throw your hat into this arena and start to compete with others to empower them and we know there's so many coaches out there that do need the principles and the tools that you're providing but what was that motivation to even write this book originally I wanted to start writing books when I first got into coaching years and years ago. And I just never thought, well, I'm not a very good writer or this and that. And eventually before you know it, you got 25, 30 book ideas, but you've never written a book. And so a few years ago I was speaking, going around, working with teams. And this one coach said to me, you know, we really, we'd love to bring you in, but we can't afford you right now. But do you have like a manual? Do you have like a handbook or something that you could give us that's cheaper, but we could still get some of what you're teaching and, and what you're, what you're training kids on. And, and it was right then I was like, man, I have got to, to, you know, get off my rear end and get a book written and I need to put my philosophies in. So essentially we took everything that we were teaching, uh, different sports teams, different athletic departments, and we put it in book form. And that was the leadership playbook. And so it's, it's broken down. Obviously there's chapters in it because it's a book and each chapter, one chapter might be verbal leadership. One chapter might be leading yourself, then leading others, uh, leading no matter what your position is leading if you're a captain. So there's different chapters, different topics. And with each, each chapter, there's tons of stories. So there's stories about Kobe. There's stories about Michael Jordan, Jerry Rice. There's just different stories to articulate the point that I'm trying to get at. So I wrote that book. Then I wrote another one called Building Champions, uh, pr- Success Principles from A to Z. And so like each chapter was a different uh, success principle, a-, a for attitude, B for belief, C for courage. And then uh, my third book that I've written, the final book or the most recent book was The Bus Trip, and that was fiction. So I kind of dived into a new genre, for me at least, and and wrote fiction. And that was the most fun book that I wrote because, one, you, you let your imagination go, but two... It was the book that I thought, hey, this is what I want my kids or any other kid to read. This is something that I think that they'll read this and they'll, the light bulb will go on and they'll be like, man, I can be a better teammate. I can be a more positive leader and it, I don't have to wait for my coach. So the book wasn't about, hey, the coach did this to make them want to do it. It was the players standing up and saying, hey, I want to be a better teammate. I want to be a better leader and I want our culture to be better. So that was fun to write that. When you were in that coaching position, how did you have to pull 
kids to be leaders. I mean, that was a big thing working with a lot of coaches. They would say, Hey, this is the best kid. He is the captain. But then you realize they're quiet. They're not used to that. And they're not really motivating the group. But uh, I always hated when coaches are like, you know, I'm really expecting you to step up and be a leader. That, that's what I'm getting. Oh, at. dude, like, it, it, like, like the amount of times I've run into, you know, different kids that are like, you know, the coach is really expecting me to step up to be a leader. And I can never think of a single moment where a coach in all the years I played was like, we need you to be a better leader out there. But they they don't give them the tools, the steps, or the opportunity. Well, like, they give them the opportunity, I guess, but... Well, I mean, uh, um, you know, there's a reason I coined the phrase, geez, it was, uh, I think it was my third or fourth year in Philadelphia. You know, the absence of true leadership, false prophets appear. Uh, you know, what I realized pretty early on is that, uh, um, at least in football, leadership comes from being a good player and doing all the little things and being the example. It's not the guy who's standing up fucking giving, you know, motivational rah-rah speeches and, you know, trying to kick the door off of the hinges. For me, that was always kind of disingenuous because when shit got tough, those are the guys that seem to be like disappearing in the back, like, uh, you know, yeah, you know, Mr. Coach Klein in, uh, (laughs) you know, and we used to see that all the time. You know, the dude that's given, you know, wants to like pull everybody together and like, you know, hype everybody up all of a sudden when we're down by, you know, two touchdowns is like hiding in the background behind the water coolers. And I'm like, dude, like the leader is the guy that regardless of what's going on is still trying to go out there and take scalps. Well, that will conclude this episode of, uh, of, uh, <laughs> the leader, the leadership podcast. That was, that was good stuff. That that's essentially, I agree with both of you wholeheartedly, um, one is coaches are not giving their kids tools. They're not equipping them. They're not developing more leaders. They're spending most of their time just trying to get compliant followers. And yes, we, yes, we want people to do what we say as a leader. Yeah. Obviously you have to lead, you have to do what you're supposed to do, but as leaders, we spend way too much time trying to get Tex and John to just, you know, do what I tell you to do as opposed to giving them the tools to step up and be better leaders or to do things on their own without coach asking them or without a captain telling them. So I don't think number one, we as leaders equip and develop other leaders. But like John said, uh, I agree wholeheartedly. I think our idea of leadership uh, is, is wrong in this country, to be honest. I think we put way too much stock on your position, your title, what kind of status you have, but we also, when it looks in verbal leadership, or we look at this person, that's the rah, rah, you know, Braveheart, you know, I know that's older movie, but you know, the, the still hero, a classic. Mel- still a yeah. classic. I mean, you got the hero up on a horse and he's giving this speech and then thousands of people follow him in the battle, or you got the Tim Tebow's or, you know, these kind of people that we see. Yeah, but in Braveheart, he gave that speech and then he was the first one into the fight, which off a great point, And that you often know? gets forgotten. Yeah. Uh, but we've all been around, you know, we've all played sports. We've all been around that Yahoo. That's like, come on guys, we got to play. We got to, we got to work uh, harder. And it's like, dude, you're not touching the lines and you're almost last in sprints. Yeah. You know, come on, just simmer down a little bit. I, I had a negative connotation with the word coach for a long, long time. And when people would call me coach, I'd always be like, Hey, you can call me John, but uh coach is usually a dude who's standing out there in shorts with a whistle while I'm fucking busting my ass. So, you know, watching me fucking bust my ass just because we would go to training camp and we would play and like the coaches are out there fucking screaming, blowing whistles and whatever. And they're out there sweating. I mean, I give them that, but I'm like, dude, you guys are just standing there. Uh, you know, like, believe me, I, I appreciate all of this, but like for me, coach was like the dude who's standing there, you know, or, or, uh, you know, Andy Reed talking about somebody like you need to be in better shape because <laughs> he's over there with a, you know, fucking A1C of 10 and a, 
you know, 400 uh, blood sugar count. I mean, like to me, it's um, and not that he needs to be in shape, but it's like, uh, like I always appreciated playing for coaches and playing for people that had done the job and spoke to me as a professional. And I think like that was something that, you know, like, hey, you don't have to fucking chew my ass. I'm harder on myself than anybody else. But if you're not providing me the, the direction and, and providing me the tools for my for greater success, then you're effectively just uh, a screaming coach. And we used to call guys, this guy's just a fucking screamer. He doesn't know what he's doing. Well, 100%. You know, leadership, most of us as leaders – we, we paint by numbers. We color by numbers. We, we do a template. We're going to treat Tex and John the same way. We're going to treat every team. You know, this worked last year with our team. Or we're going to do the same thing with all the guys or all the gals on our team. And, and that's not true leadership. That's just, to me, managing. Uh, that's just being a manager or just doing some, you know, some kind of a template. Real leadership is diving in and saying, hey, what does Tex need? What does Tex want? How can I get Tex from where he is to where he needs to be in the same way with John? And you're doing that with all your athletes. And, and certainly there's, there's certain nuances and certain dynamics at the different levels. So high school, college, pro, there's going to be some dynamics a little bit that are different. But at the end of the day, even at the pro level, uh, and, and, you, and you guys know this, but even at the pro level, there's feelings, there's emotion, there's agendas, there's fears, there's things involved with those people because they're still humans. Now their bank accounts bigger and they're a better athlete than the college and high school guys, but still there there's, there's ways that you can lead them. And that's why some of the best coaches you've seen uh, take, for instance, basketball. Some of the best coaches have been guys that have been able to connect with their athletes. Uh, a Phil Jackson going back way in the day, Chuck Daly with the Detroit Pistons and the dream team. Uh, Greg Popovich, even Steve Kerr, guys who that locker room kind of believes in that coach, that that coach knows those players and is not just, I'm going to paint by numbers. I'm just going to scream because that's what my coach did. Or I'm, you know, Greg Popovich, I mean, he wasn't afraid to dog cuss you out, but you also, there was, you know, he was going to have tough conversations. He was going to have quote unquote tough love, but he was also going to have a strong bond and a strong connection. Most of those guys knew that, all right, Coach Popovich, he's got my best interest. He's trying to get the best out of me. And maybe he's not going to coach everybody the same or lead everybody the same. And, and I don't think that you can do that. But I think the best leaders are those people that are, are figuring out what makes each person tick and what each person needs. So I, I agree with you, John. I don't think the screaming – I think there's some people that need screaming. I don't think that most people need screaming. I think most people need, hey, help me go to where I need to go. Help me get to where I need to get. And I, I don't like need you. As you go up the rung, the the screaming lessons, um, and I saw that like uh, you know uh, my high school coaches like they didn't coach us to do anything. All they did was fucking scream at us, and half the time I didn't even know what they were screaming about. And uh, like that was like I always joke that uh, I succeeded in football in spite of my high school football coaches. Like uh, if I had actually listened to them and like you know like uh, plugged into what they were saying, I probably would have never got to college. And when I got to college, I played for uh, a guy named Tom Cable, who's, you know, was head coach of uh, Seattle and, uh, you know, really, really talented. Oakland and then uh, assistant coach of Seattle. Seattle. Yeah. And he was real talented, but uh, he was younger. He was like 28, 29 years old at the time and was still pissed off that he wasn't playing football. So like a lot of his anger was because of his own shortcoming. And it's funny as a kid, you don't realize this, but now as an adult, I look back and I'm like, I think that dude was just upset with who he was. And he was fiery. Yeah, and channeled it out on us. And then you get to the NFL, and all of a sudden you're having a coach 
where you realize you're like, hey man, um, at the end of the day, I could do this job better than you because I understand the nuance better because I actually played this job for a long time. And, um, you know, working with offensive line coaches and different pl- pl- uh, coaches that played at the highest level, those are the dudes that you really plug into and you, you start understanding because they can talk to you on like a very personal level. Hey, like when this is happening, this is what you need to do. This is how you need to improve to become a better player opposed from somebody that's just like, you know, and I think I, I love your point about being able to assess each individual athlete. Like if I worked with a bunch of young athletes, every one of them would have a slightly different prescription. And, uh, but then, but that also takes time and nuance and understanding all the, you know, all the small pieces, which is just, uh, applying yourself to the craft, just not fucking screaming at people. Yeah, but it takes effort and uh, all that stuff, even at the pro level, <clears throat> it, it takes tremendous effort and time. Uh, you know, like <clears throat> in a marriage, you know, I, yeah, I can stop at the shell station on the way home and get, you know, an overpriced flower that'll die in a couple of days, or I can bring chocolates home to my wife, or I can bring a card or balloons home. You know, and that temporarily might soothe something over or or I think I'm doing my part. But ultimately, I've got to sit down and talk with her or, well, more to the point, I've got to listen to her. Uh, I've got to sit down. I've got to invest in my marriage, not just invest in these trivial things. But a lot of coaches, they just look at the trivial things. They They want to worry about, I got to put this new play in or I've got to put this new drill in, or I've got to do this new X's and O's thing. When really what you need to do is you need to find out why John is not running this play right. Not think about the plays, not think about strategy and tactics, even though those are important. But sometimes it comes down to, we got, we got to figure out what's going on with Tex and John and why maybe, maybe there's something between them. Maybe there's an agenda there. Maybe they don't trust one another. Maybe they trust each other but they don't trust their teammates or maybe they trust each other, but they don't trust me as a coach. Um, and so when I work with coaches, I'm trying to get them to see, Hey, it's not, yes. X's nose competency is huge importance, but at the end of the day, you still got to get the people to execute those X's and O's and execute those tactics. And if they're not inspired, if they're not engaged, if they don't trust you, if they don't respect you, then, then you could have the best plays in the world and it's not going to work. When I talk with the players, I'm telling them essentially, hey, it doesn't matter if your coach is the biggest idiot in the world. You can still do what you know you need to do. And we try to help them understand what they need to do. Um, you know, because not 15-year-olds, 16-year-olds, sometimes even young guys in the, in the pros, they don't truly understand how to be a good teammate. They don't truly understand maybe what I can do when I'm actually not playing because they've never had that experience before where they're not playing. They're sitting on the bench and it's not because they're in foul trouble or they're injured. It's because coach sat them on the bench and they're not used to that. How can I still be a good teammate? So you, you have to teach people. As when you went up to pro and Toronto Raptors, I believe. Yeah. And what was that? What was the most enlightening experience? Was it that the, the coach, the kids who were the best in class within their college or high school Man, uh, then uh, had to play backup or well, uh, practice think squad? Think about how different basketball is as a sport where you have 18-year-old kids that are playing in high school that the next year can be playing in the NBA. And, exactly right. I mean, not just coming off the bench and maybe getting a you know assist, but coming off and scoring 18, 20, 25 points. I mean, oh, and here's like, $15 million. Well, uh, so, so that's what's interesting where, like, you know, in the NFL, you're 22, 23 years old. You've been through college. You know, you've matured a little bit. I can't imagine. And then such a small team with, like, you know, you might have a kid that's 18 and a dude that's 35. Like, I, I just it, – it seems like a, such, a, such a much more difficult – 
um, you know, group of individuals and such a small, small little nucleus of talented players. Yeah, you know, every sport and every level has its 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 dynamics. You know, in, in football, I would say football to me is the ultimate team sport. You know, even more than a basketball. Uh, even though I love basketball and I coached it, I think football is more of a team sport. So it's to me, in some ways, it's even harder to get that all those guys, you know, whether it's NFL, college or high school to get all those guys to buy into. I'm playing my role for not for me, but for the sake of the guy next to me or the guy over there um, across the field. Basketball there's less guys, but like you said, the dynamic, especially at the pro level of these guys were, I mean, they just essentially got their driver's license and now all of a sudden they're, they're making millions as a starter sometimes. So yes, the NBA has that different, that different feel to it. I've, I've, I've talked with a lot of coaches, a lot of players at different, at different organizations. Toronto is the only organization I've worked with as a whole. So from an organizational standpoint, I can, I can address Toronto. The one thing that, that stood out to me the most with them was their culture. They had established, and it, it took a couple years, but they had established a culture where they were trying to achieve a team goal, not individual, which is unusual, especially in the NBA. Sure. But uh, Toronto, the, years, the, the year that I worked with them, they were coming off a season where their, their starters played the least amount of minutes of any starting five in the NBA. And you don't you don't have success. They ended up being number one in the Eastern Conference that year. Uh, they were the best team in the Eastern Conference regular season, and their starters played the least amount of minutes. And you don't get that with a group of guys, especially guys with egos, guys with big bank accounts, unless you've built this culture where they know that the reserves are good, that they trust their reserves, they trust their backups, and they're helping one another. There's that 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 chemistry, that uh, that that synergy there with those guys, and one of the things. So so you asked me what was most enlightening. It was that the coaching staff was completely coachable. I did not anticipate that whatsoever, to be honest. Uh, at this time, it was Dwayne Casey, uh, Coach Casey. He's now with the Detroit Pistons. But going, this was the summer before his last year with Toronto, and he they were actually he won Coach of the Year that that year. Um, that upcoming year, he would win coach of the year in the NBA. I was absolutely amazed at how coachable he was, how he listened to his assistants when I sat in on the meetings, how he would ask me things, ask me my opinion about various things. He truly wanted the best for his team. Now he had, obviously he had ideas and every coach has ideas, but I think it's no, I think it's no, uh, uh, coincidence that he was very coachable and he also listened to his players doesn't mean he's going to do everything that a player says but he listened to them because he wanted to know them he wanted to 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 know how to motivate or inspire is probably even a better word and he had some guys that maybe weren't the easiest to coach you know a, a Kyle Lowry before Kyle Lowry came to Toronto Kyle Lowry had a bad reputation he had bounced around in the league, talented guy, but he had a reputation. He came to Toronto and, and he's been amazing in Toronto. And I think part of that was the coaching staff there knew how to inspire him, knew what he liked, knew how to coach him. And they coached him differently than they coached DeMar DeRozan or Serge Ibaka. Um, and so I think that that's important as a coaching staff. And that was the thing that stood out to me the most. Um, but, you know, working at their mini camps, I would see guys step up and take leadership. 
you know, John, you, you said sometimes coaches will say, you know, hey, you got to step up and be a leader. I saw some times where Kyle Lowry and DeMar DeRozan weren't there. Okay. And so guys like Fred Van Fleet or Pascal Siakam, young guys stood up and they took ownership of that team because the so-called positional leaders or the, the captains weren't there. So somebody had to step up and not be rah, rah, but just step up and say, you know what, we're going to touch the lines in all these sprints. You know what? We're going to be on time. You know what? We're going to do what's right. And I'll, I'll give you, I'll, I'll give you a, a quick story. Fred Van Fleet, uh, he's coming off of his second, his first year in the NBA undrafted guy out of Wichita state. He played half the year in the NBA, half the year in the G league. And we arrive, this is the summer at a mini camp and we arrive, we're in LA and we arrive at this gymnasium, this community college to do uh, a workout, a training session. And it's really just the players and coaches. There's no really support staff managers, that kind of stuff. So there's a couple bags of basketballs. So we get out of this van and there's, there's two bags of balls and there's like five guys around the bags and you can almost see it seems like it took forever but it was only a couple seconds but you can see them doing their their mental math well there's five of us and there's two bags so if i wait just a little bit long i don't have to you know i don't have to grab a bag and it seemed like forever but then out of nowhere freddie fred van fleet just comes in picks up both bags says screw this let's go get better and he walks away and the guys are like okay and they follow him this is a dude that was in the g league half the year last year and was undrafted well, now he, this past summer, he got paid, he got the highest contract of any undrafted free agent ever in NBA history. I mean, he's making bank now. I mean, he's become a, a, an amazing player in the NBA. I saw, he didn't have to give a rah-rah speech. Obviously, he was verbal. He, he stood up. But you watch him play, and he's not always the one yelling and screaming. Sometimes he's just diving for a loose ball. Sometimes he's just doing what he's supposed to do. And that was a whole culture I saw with the Raptors, which is one of the reasons they won a, a world championship. Wow. That and Kawhi Leonard, adding Kawhi, didn't, uh, didn't yeah. hurt. Do you think with um, – uh, who was the head coach? Dwayne Casey was the coach so, then. Uh, I've, I sometimes found with coaches where they were more – uh, I guess you could say like outcome oriented in that like, hey, our goal is to win and this is how I'm going to gauge my success is based on, you know, if we win and how well we're able to do. And like, you know, they put it on kind of other metrics. And I played for coaches where uh, something about nurturing their inner child was more important than all that. And like their ego and, you know, their system and how things are done. And if they feel that like everybody's adhering to whatever their code is, that was more important uh, and I, I, I learned this and, you know, not only in here, we do here at power athlete where I'm like, I have no problem being a chief. I have no problem being an Indian. I have, uh, you know, uh, no ego in this thing. The only ego is success and that's the only, and that's the outcome. And so whatever we have to do to be successful, uh, everybody rose, you know, like that's the outcome. And I think a lot of times people start thinking, well, I need to, you know, be in this position and this is how I need to be treated and this and this. And instead of being like, fuck all that. Like, let's win and let's be successful and whoever, you know, and that should be the measure of success. There, there's certainly a, a part of that, that, uh, that I think is true. And, and the, here's the problem with the outcome based or the results based is that when you're really talented, you can get away with some of that stuff. Or if you have very clearly defined haves and have nots, you can get away with that for most of the teams out there. 
you're going to have to have something else that's sustainable, something else that is kind of a foundation for you that, and and I'm not kumbaya. I'm not saying let's sit around in a circle. No, this is great. It's, it's, it's the, I know cliche, but trust the process, but not the process of, well, we don't care about winning. No, we want to win. We, we definitely want to win and we want to beat your brains out and whatever we're doing, but there's a way that we're going to go about doing it. And we also recognize that, you know, John might get hurt. Tex might have to take his place. And if throughout this whole process or our process, but throughout this whole season or throughout my coaching, if all I've done is put my attention on John and built John up and made everything about John, then when John's not there, Tex isn't prepared. Tex isn't ready. And our whole team is not relying on Tex. They've been relying on John. So you want to build up a a sustainable program, a sustainable culture, a a sustainable organization so that when you have those downs or those lulls or when somebody's not performing the way they can or they're having a fight with their wife or they're having family issues or whatever it is that the other guys can 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 raise that level of that team a little bit. And I think. Uh, I don't think it has to be all or nothing. I don't think it has to be. All right. We're only worried about process never about wins, but I don't think it should be, we're only worried about wins and never about, all right, let's build something here. I I think you need to combine that, but you've got to be always striving for excellence. But, but once again, at the pro level, at the pro level, yes, there's going to be more of a business attitude, more of a get it done attitude, but some of those guys can flip a switch a lot easier, but you still see plenty of NFL teams, plenty of NBA teams that underachieve every year in the playoffs. Uh, because they have they have talent, but they haven't they haven't built that culture, or they don't have those intangibles, and maybe they're relying on flipping the switch, or maybe what happens when adversity strikes, they're not able to overcome that, you know. And and this a uh, this is a, an extreme example, but there's very few teams out there that could have been in the Super Bowl down a million points like the Patriots and came back to win. Sure. Now I know that's an extreme example because the Patriots are are up on a pedestal for their culture and how they do things, but not everybody can react to adversity or when things aren't going well and, and, and react the same way. And that that's individual or that's an organization as well. Yeah. I'm, uh, th- this is something that I noticed because when I played in Philly, uh, you know, we got to the playoffs and we did real well. Um, and then when I went to Kansas city chiefs, it was interesting. Like when I played in, in Philly, like in November, all of a sudden you felt like the sense of urgency stepped up. That if you look at the NFL, it's the teams that finish strong in that really that like middle of the third quarter, fourth quarter of the season, uh, you know, Q3, Q4. It's not the teams that start fast in, you know, Q1, Q2. It's the teams that finish. And I knew, and, and as soon as it got cold, all of a sudden, like this sense of urgency just went up. And everybody looked at every game as like, hey, we can't lose this one. Like, we're going to go out and fucking, like, there was no way we were walking out there to lose. And it's just like the preparation and everything just kind of ratcheted up. And, uh, that to me didn't happen, and I and I sometimes wonder if that's a culture thing, or it's just having certain players that just start demanding that that happens. And um, you know, the the players that I think do really well in the playoffs is when they can kind of sense that moment of urgency and they start picking up their game, and there's no more mistakes, there's no more screwing around, and everybody starts getting real focused. When all of a sudden now we're heading into this thing and we need the momentum, and that was something that the Patriots, when I played there. I mean, shit, they had that sense of urgency in, in preseason. And 
I, you know, when uh, Tom Brady left, uh, everybody's like, oh, you know, it's Belichick. I'm like, I'm telling you, man, Tom Brady was the straw, was the straw that stirred that entire drink and uh, was for a number of years. And, uh, you know, Belichick's a great coach, but it's tough to do it without having that dude that can stir the drink. Well, and, and, and two, you know, there's, there's some DNA there. There's some, the personality there, but you know, a Tom Brady can, well, I shouldn't even say a Tom Brady, but you know, you'll see him rip into Julian Edelman on the sideline or rip into somebody once in a while in, in a way Tom Brady will do it. And, and there's not a fight. Okay. They don't fight somebody else, a quarterback, another quarterback might do the same thing and it doesn't go over well because they don't have that relationship. They don't have that connection. So there's a lot of variables that come in. As you know, there's a lot of variables in that locker room. There's a lot of variables on that sideline, but ultimately what I see being one of the biggest problems coaches have is they're constantly being like a tumbleweed and, and going whichever way the wind blows, that's which way they're going to go. And they're, they keep, they keep, they don't have anything sustainable. Now, I don't mean individual games. Like Bill Belichick is. I call is them pretty, palm trees. I call them palm, palm trees. Tree. Okay, yeah, I like that. So, so yeah, uh, I, I used like to call that. them palm trees because if you know it's a palm tree, it's uh, it's got a big root, but it's uh, real uh, shallow. So that's why like they bend and move, and like you know the water okay. comes up. And so I used to call those coaches like there's palm trees and then there's oaks. You know, like a guy like Belichick is a straight up. He's an oak. He's got deep roots and he's going to weather every storm and he's going to be there a hundred years from now. <laughs> Whereas a lot of these other coaches were just like palm trees where you're like, man, there's a lot of sway there. Yeah. And you see that with, with decisions they make or people that they bring in. Now you're not ever going to be a hundred percent, you know, you're never going to be perfect with your personnel decisions, but there's, there's a clear plan for teams like the new England Patriots. There's a clear plan for teams like the San Antonio Spurs when they were winning and it's like that. Now Belichick might change up. He might have 16 different game plans during the year for that specific game. That's not what I'm talking about, a specific game. But ultimately, the philosophy of an organization, uh, there's stability there. And the people yeah. that they're bringing in, the, the people they're getting on that bus are the right people for that bus. Might not be the right person for any other bus in the NBA, NBA or the NFL, but they're right for that team. Um and, and you see that sometimes people go somewhere else and they never have the success. Sure. Um, but, you know, they're, they're, the problem is, is we, we sometimes try to put everything in a box and say, well, if I do this, then I'm going to have that success. And it's not that easy because, you know, you've seen it in the NFL. People can flip a switch, but not everybody can. The yeah. majority of guys can't flip that switch if they don't have that habits. I mean, there's, there's a reason the Navy SEALs talk about, you know, it's not like you can rise to the level of your competition. You're going to sink to the level level of your your training. training. Yeah. Yeah. And for the most part, that's going to be a true statement. Now there are those athletes and are those teams that overall can flip switches, but I would say probably they it's because they've built up habits through the years. They've built up those, those soft skills, which aren't very soft, but they build up those intangibles to be that teammate, to be that leader. And, and whether you're the rah, rah guy or not, people are following you or, you know what, just matter of fact, I'm leading myself. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. And that's going to help us also. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, I used to say, dude, uh, I never saw a guy that was dog shit on Wednesday. That was a superstar on Sunday. I mean, it was like, yeah. uh, you know, like, like very, like very few times did somebody run on the field or, you know, come in second that like, you know, all of a sudden was somebody different than we know them to be. Well, quick question on that. And to you, Jamie and John, what about the guy that was the all-star practice stud 
but come game time. Oh yeah, we used to call that. Uh, um, we we used to have dudes constantly that like every uh, you know in college every spring you know in helmets, uh, which is called shells. We would call. We would have these dudes that were shell superstars, and they'd be like, "Oh, this guy's going to come in," and I'd be like, "Wait till we get to training camp." Just wait till we get to training camp. And as soon as we got to training camp and we started fucking laying the licks on, all of a sudden that dude just started disappearing. And every year I'd be like, hey, what? Uh, you were so high on that guy in the spring. What happened? And they were like, oh, you know, we'll wait to be high on him again next spring. Coach, how did you deal with that? Yeah. I'm sure you had a, some stars at some point like that. Uh, yeah. 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 Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it goes back to, and, and this sounds. It, it, it's not, I, I make it sound simple, but it's not easy. You have to get to know your players. And if you have a player like that, you got to constantly, not necessarily be on their butts, even though that might be what they need. And maybe you do that for that particular player, but you have got to constantly be, Hey, what do you want? What do you want out of this game? What do you want out of this season? What do you want out of your career? And then, Hey, here's a plan for you. This is the vision. I think you could do this too. You have all this talent, you know, you call them sh- uh, what shell superstars yeah, or, sh- yeah, yeah. Uh, or, you know, the, the dudes that, that are amazing at the combine, mm-hmm. you know, the NFL combine, they're amazing in shorts, you know, and, and tight shorts and gym shoes and track sh- turf shoes or whatever. And the then Mike Mamula effect. <laughs> yes. And I played with Mike and I like him. He's a great dude, but yeah, straight up Mike Mamula effect. Yeah. But they have, but they do have something there talent wise. They do have something physically. So how can I get that out of them? So now what you got to do is, is not worry about, all right, they're at this level and I'm going to be disappointed if they don't get to this level. No, we're going to try to go on a continuum and we're going to try to, to measure some progress along the way. But what you're going to try to do also, one as a coach is you're going to try to put them in positions where they can maybe be more successful. So I immediately, as you were talking about the shell superstars, thinking about a wide receiver, you know, that looks great great in passing drills looks great you know with no one out there but man when you have a middle linebacker out there that's yeah. that's not good for them well is it possible for you as a coach to limit the plays where that guy's cutting across the middle or doing slants or doing some kind of a drag route that's going to get him you know introduced to a mic you know <laughs> are there some things that you can do now you obviously can't tailor your whole offense around some soft dude or some guy that's underachieving, but are there some things you can tweak to put them in a position to utilize their strengths a little bit more, but also to minimize their weaknesses while you work on those weaknesses on the side. So it's a process. It's tough. Now, if you get a guy for one year and he's got all these weaknesses or he's soft, that's going to be tough to change them. Yeah. But if, but if you have a couple years and they're coachable and they're willing, but they also have to trust you. Hey, you got to trust me, John, that, that we can get, here's the vision. Here's where you want to go. I think we can get you here, but this is what it's going to look like. That's, it, it's not easy. It takes a lot of work. How, um, um, in your experience, and uh, I'll just use an example, and I know you, you might not work with this team, but, um, you know, as an outsider and having played in the NFL for a decade, like looking at this from the outside, I'm, I'm like shaking my head, but like, uh, like the Houston Texans. You know, they obviously have that like pretty tumultuous season, fire a GM, fire a coach, bring in an interim, uh, you know, their uh, star marquee player, J.J. Watt, you know, gets really, you know, they, they finally give him a release. Uh, Deshaun Watson's not returning phone calls and now he's embroiled in this like, you know, 22 different women stepping up with all these sexual assault claims. I mean, they bring in a new coach and David Tully, who I actually know, who's never been a head coach before, um, like, 
I look at that situation and I'm like, like, how does a, uh, like, how do you even begin to dissect something that has that much turmoil going on? I mean, it's, it's hard enough to win games when everything's going right, but when you start throwing this many things at them, like, how do they not implode? It's a great question. And I, to be honest, I'm surprised that Houston's even gone to the playoffs in the last few years at all. Um, Me too, as a fan. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think the casual fan, if you asked them, you would think that they were at the bottom every year in the standings, and that hasn't been the case, but they also haven't been where they should be. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't know the particulars there. Uh, you know, it, it seemed like you had some coaching errors in, in play calling, but then supposedly, you know, Coach O'Brien was supposed to be pretty good at play calling. Uh, you know, you had some personnel issues that that I question as a fan or as someone on the outside. But, you know, the one thing I've noticed in the NFL, and this is this is more so as a fan, and John, you could probably speak to this more directly, but I, I do think coaches tend to play it more safe sometimes and, and go a lot more conservative in the NFL. Um, and, and try to stick with status quo and, and not rock the boat. And and that's easy to defend against, especially on offense with offensive play calling. Yeah. Um, and that's what I felt like Bill O'Brien did. That's what I feel like some other coaches do is they play it too close to the vest, too safe. Um, but but that's that's not necessarily about leadership other than you're not utilizing your talent. Well, I have um, a way to spin this to leadership where we can get your expertise involved, Jamie. Bill O'Brien, and I know that I followed Houston Texans very closely as a Houstonian and fan, but he would spread himself too thin. He began as the head coach, then he took on the, the GM responsibilities, which then led to play calling, like he had to fire that. So he was wearing every single hat yeah, in there. But, but, uh, but like, that's a poor sign of leadership. So that's what I want to get to is the yeah. more general question. Like, As a leader, how do you know you're spreading yourself too thin? Because he's like effort i got to do this because i can't find the right guy how do you know as an individual that you're spreading yourself too thin and then how do you aim to build the team to find the right guy to help you shine and be put yourself in the best position to succeed like you would your star wide receiver well i 100 percent think that you have to surround yourself with good people and hopefully people that are even smarter than you if if you look around on the sideline and the bench and you're the smartest person there you may be in trouble I think you need to surround yourself with great people and then let them do their jobs, provided you've given them vision and 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 you've talked about some stuff, but let them do their jobs. Now, if we're talking about the pro level, I, I, I'm I'm pretty adamant. Now, John might disagree or he might have a different take. I'm pretty adamant that a head coach shouldn't be a play caller and a head coach shouldn't be a GM. I, I think all three of those positions are distinct. Yeah. And there's different agendas to each one um, well, or different outcomes to each one. I and, couldn't and agree with you more, dude. Now, if you're talking like high school or junior high, you're probably not going to find people in your community good enough to do different positions. So you're going to have to do a lot as a coach and you're going to spread yourself too thin sometimes. But the higher up level you get, there are experts out there. But, you know, a play caller I mean, we've seen it time and time again, a play caller or an offensive coordinator gets a head coaching job because their offense was great, but they have no idea how to work with players outside of their, their positions or, or they're just good at calling plays. They're not good at running a whole program or running a whole organization. Um, And there's not a lot of, there is pressure to perform, but there's not a lot of pressure. Uh, This, this is going to sound, this might even be wrong. I don't think 
there's not necessarily pressure on a play caller to win the game. Um, there's pressure on the play caller to call good plays and have an offense that works, but not to win the game. So sometimes there's that offense defense dichotomy where they're not in sync sometimes. And, and so I, I think if you're, if you're a head coach and you're the offensive coordinator, sure. It's been done in history, but more times than not, it's failed. Sure. No, and especially, I, I, especially I GM and head coach, GM and head coach, coach, coach should be, not necessarily a hundred percent advocate for players, but man, that coach should have the back of players. And when you're a GM, now you're getting into business yeah. and, and at the pro level, you don't want, don't mess with the money. Don't mess with people's money. Don't mess with the business. Don't mess with their family. Um, and that's what a GM sometimes has to do or oftentimes has to do. So yeah, yeah I think you lose trust there. And, and so, yes, I would say that that was a major issue there in Houston. Um, Obviously, there's been some people that have done it effectively, but more times than not, it doesn't work. I agree. No, I, I uh, completely agree. I think uh, there needs to be like a separation of church and state that, you know, <laughs> when, the, when the head coach is making your financial decision on your contract and all of a sudden now, because, you know, at the end of the day, he's trying to get you as cheap as possible. So he's in there saying things like, this guy can't play. I don't, you know, this. And like, all of a sudden now he like changes his hat and is like, rah, rah, rah. And you're like, you were just telling me and my agent that I'm a piece of shit here earlier. And you don't think I'm going to last in this league or, you know, you know, trying to find any reason to not pay me. And, uh, man, I just think that's a, it's a poor move. And, um, I definitely agree that, uh, you know, you should have that, you know, guy who's working the spreadsheets and, you know, negotiating the deals. That's like, I just know what the coach tells me, you know? And, uh, and then you, you know, when you start getting into the offensive coordinator stuff, I mean, that's just, a if the head coach has to call the plays, then like he's not doing all that kind of that field general stuff. Like, hey, what's the down and distance? What are we doing? What's, you know, like kind of directing almost doing this. So, no, I agree with you 100%. Sticking with the, the crucial conversations, whether I'm a GM to a player, head coach to a player, I'd like to take it down a notch to a, a peer-to-peer. How did you, with your captains and the leaders within your teams, help them start to call out your short on that line? or aim to be more vocal leaders and hold their teammates peer-to-peer accountable? Yeah, my, my philosophy and what I did with most of my teams, especially the successful ones, the ones where we ended up being good, was we took the approach that every single player on this team is a leader. Now, you're not all going to look the same. You're not all going to lead the same. But everybody, kind of like what John was, was, uh, was uh, decrying about earlier or, or uh, you know, uh, talking about where, where sometimes you say, hey, you got to step up and be a leader. I didn't want them to step up and be a leader in a traditional sense if that wasn't what they were comfortable with or where their talents were. But everybody needed to be a leader. And here, and I de-emphasize captains. Uh, I didn't do away with captains, but I de-emphasized the role of captain because sometimes Tex and John are going to be a freshman and a sophomore in the back of the bus or in the dorm room, and they're not captains. And there's no coach around. There's no captain around. So I didn't want to give a crutch that, all right, it, only people on this team that are real leaders are the coaches and the captains. So what we did was we trained everybody to be a captain. So there's two parts to that. One is we're training everybody to be a captain of themselves. You can be your own captain. You can do what you're supposed to do and be a better teammate. But secondly, we were also, while we were doing this, we're also training up. If John's a great captain as a senior, we're training John's replacement. 
because I have seen it on teams and, and uh, the one that comes to mind, it, it's not a real famous one, but Michigan state a few years ago was 11 and 0 or 11 and one on the season football. And they had an amazing senior class that they relied on. They left the next year. They were terrible because they had this huge leadership void. They hadn't, the, they relied so much on those senior captains who were amazing. Uh, now, certainly they had a talent void too. They weren't as talented, but, but uh, the coach would talk about, they had a leadership void that next year. They didn't do a good job of developing more leaders. So by taking the approach and certainly it's easier me as a basketball coach than it is as a football coach. It's easier with me with 15 guys than it is with 75, 80, 90 guys. Um, but we, we trained up every single player to be a leader. And so uh, you, you've said verbal leader a couple times. My belief is that everybody's a verbal leader. Everybody can be a vocal leader. You're not Braveheart. You're not Tim Tebow. But everybody can be a verbal leader. And there's three ways I think everybody can be a verbal leader. Number one is they can inform. Everybody on the team can inform. Hey, Tex, uh, coach just said we're going to meet in the weight room instead of the locker room. Okay? Okay. You just help Tex. I just help Tex do what Texas should do. So I just helped you verbally. I might not be a verbal leader in my mind, but I just verbally helped you do what you're supposed to do. So informing. Second is encouraging. You can encourage. Everybody on the team can help other people get to where they need to be and do what they're supposed to do by just encouraging. Hey, man, you can do this. Hey, I remember what you did. You know, I saw you do this Wednesday in practice. I know you can do this because I just saw you do it Wednesday in practice, man. You can do it. Keep it up. I'm not talking like the pom-pom positivity or the, the encouraging like you see sometimes from AAU coaches or whatever that are like, come on, come on, come on. Do it. Do it. Do it. You can do it. Come on. Come on. Come on. Those so are like, just for Instagram. That's yeah, you're not Instagram you're coach. not telling them. You're not telling me anything. Um, encourage, but but don't have a false or fake or a hollow encouragement. But, man, you can do this, man. I saw you do this, you know, or whatever. Third is reminders. You can remind. And that's most people say hold accountable. And, and I don't have a huge problem with saying hold accountable. But I do think for younger kids, uh, high school kids and even some college kids, that gets a negative connotation. Holding accountable. I'm the bad guy. I'm the coach. I'm the policeman. I'm the I'm the jerk. You know, I'm the guy. I don't want to hold someone accountable. No, but you know what? I can hold John. I I can hold John accountable by reminding him of what our standards are. Hey, man, we don't do that here. Or hey, man, we do this here. This is how we do things. Or remind John of what his goals are, what what he wants to achieve this year. Hey, John, I saw you doing this, but you know, you told me you wanted to achieve this or you wanted to do this this week. That's not doing that, you know. Or hey, Jamie, you said you didn't want to drink pop anymore. You know, and uh, so I saw you, I saw you drinking pop, you know, did your goals change? Yeah. You know, so not being the jerk, but just reminding people. So everybody can be a verbal leader. And if you get your guys, so if I get 15 players on my team, understanding that they can do those things, as long as they have a tongue, as long as they can talk, they can verbally help the team verbally be a leader. Then our culture is going to be a little bit better. Um, and it's a process, you know, you work at it. They're not going to be great at it to start with, but, and the, the final thing I'll say about that, or, uh, you know, then I'll kick it back to you. But even in my book, the bus trip, there is never a conversation that's happening on that bus or in the rest area or at the restaurant 
that it's two people that don't like each other that are talking to each other. It's always people that have a connection or a friendship or a relationship. And I think that's important because if John and I don't like each other, I'm not going to be able to remind him of our standards because he's not going to listen to me. He doesn't like me or he doesn't respect me. If Tex and I are cool, Tex is going to be more apt to listen to me when I tell him something. Now, I might not be able to affect John. I might not be able to lead John. My goal as a leader is not to get all 15 basketball players to follow me into battle. Um, that's rare. That's the Braveheart thing. That's rare. My goal is to get my two closest friends to follow me into battle. My goal is to get the two or three people that respect me the most to we're all on board with this. And then, you know what? Somebody else is friends with John. John has two or three other friends and they're going to lead him. But we can't. It's very rare to lead people who don't like you. Um, and that that's one of the that's a problem with politics. That's a problem with a lot of teams we're on is that we're we're criticizing people. We're bashing people. We don't have a good relationship with people, but then we expect them to run through a wall for us or we expect them to fall in line. Once again, compliant followers. So um, if you if you are my two buddies on the team, I'm going to influence you guys more than I'll influence these two guys over here who I don't get along with. My biggest issue was. Um... Uh, people that were disingenuous. So like if, uh, if uh, you know, on before the game, I see you in Bible study, you know, carrying your Bible and you're over there, you know, trying to be this man of God. And then on Wednesday night, all of a sudden, you, you know, you're, you know, come strolling in because you've been at the strip club till 6 a.m. And you, you know, and your wife and kids are, you know, blowing up my phone because they're trying to find out where you are. Like that was a huge problem for me. Like, and so like, hey, if you want to be a scumbag and you want to go to strip clubs and hang out, like don't get married and have kids. And then don't also go in there and Bible study and come out Bible thumping. And I used to, the problem I had with people was where I was like, dude, just, I don't care who you are, just be who you are. And, you know, don't start putting on the charade. And then what would happen, guys in the NFL would get in trouble. And then to get back in the NFL and to get deemed good guys and all of a sudden fix their image, they would become uh, Bible thumpers. And then now all of a sudden they're out there quoting scripture and, you know, getting tattoos of Jesus on them. And I'm like, dude, you're still a scumbag. And that's where I got into problems with guys. Um, I, I, as you were talking, I was thinking, man, I had a hell of a deal in college. My senior year, we're like three and eight. Uh, sorry, we were three and seven going into our last game. And uh, one of the other captains who was a linebacker, you're younger than me, we're like walking back from, uh, from meetings. And I remember we were just hanging out after the meeting. They had snack and we were late, you know, just trying to get back for curfew. And, uh, or because we're all in the hotel and they have bed check at, let's say, you know, 10 o'clock. Um, we walk by the room and uh, all of a sudden I smell marijuana coming out from underneath the door and it's one of our players. Like we knock on the door, they open and there's like 10 dudes in there drinking and smoking. And one of them's a senior and all the other guys are young guys. And we're like, what the fuck is going on here, dude? Like we're going into this like last game of our senior year. We're fucking three and seven. We're having a shitty season. And these dudes in here are young guys who aren't playing at a high level. And we got into a big, I'm sorry, was it? No, it was the second game. Just, yeah, second to last game of the year. So we get into this like big fucking tussle and we're ready to go in there and beat these dudes' ass. But then realizing that if this goes down the way we're going to go, this whole, like, we might as well not even show up to that game on Sunday or on Saturday. And um, so I was like, dude, you guys need to quit this. So we shut the door, went back out. Uh, the dude who was kind of the ringleader played actually pretty decent. And all those young guys played absolutely fucking awful. And so after practice the last week, like, you know, we call it up on a, on, you know, we go out, we had Mondays off. So we practice Sunday, Monday off, 
Tuesday and a Wednesday and I think Tuesday after practice, we called it up and these dudes were legitimately like, we have a losing season. Who gives a fuck how these games turn out? You know, we're going to go out there and get mine and I'm going to have a fucking good time. And if I want to do this and like realizing that like at this point there was no getting to these dudes and you know, like I'm going to be a senior, I'm going to go play in the NFL. That guy who actually was the ringleader for it ended up going to play in the NFL for a little bit. But like his whole thing was like, well, I'm taking care of my business. And I'm like, dude, but uh, these young guys don't have the ability to do that shit. Ah, well, they're adults. They can figure this thing out themselves. And like, I just was like, fuck, dude, like these guys are an absolute cancer on this team. And the coach didn't have the balls to, to ever call anybody on it. And, uh, you know, he was just trying to Mr. Coach Klein disappear in the back because he didn't even want to fucking be there. And, like, and that's, I, that's a problem. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No. And, 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 I, and, and, and so the problem I ran into is when I got to the NFL, I was like, you know what? Uh, if you play at a high level, that's fine. But just be honest. Like, like don't come out and rah-rah and start giving fucking coaching speeches and you know, leadership stuff when you're the dude smoking weed in the room the night before the game. Absolutely. Uh, and, and you've got to be respected. You've, you've got to, you know, I mean, that, that almost goes without saying. The problem is, is that it happens so often. You know, the problem is what you experience isn't an isolated incident that happens on so many teams at so many levels. And that's why a lot of teams under underachieve, you know, and maybe maybe you're you're senior. Maybe that dude can handle it. You know, maybe you can. I can't, though. Yeah. And and, uh, but there's there's a lot of things to unpack there. But uh, we we, won't be able to unpack all. But but, uh, you know let's say you encounter that kind of a situation and, and certainly most of us have been in a situation where there's a lot of people maybe doing what they shouldn't do. You're not going to be able to most of the time, unless you're big, big time leader on this team, like a major player, you're not going to be able to get all 10 of those guys to leave that room or to stop doing what they're doing wrong. But oftentimes what you might be able to do is get one person off to the side um, you know, and, 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 and certainly situations will differ, but oftentimes get one person kind of off to the side, Hey, this isn't what we do here. This isn't right. You know, and if you have a good relationship, they might be able to get a couple of those other guys out of the room. So you lessen the effect. Um, now, I mean, obviously a Tim Tebow, I've mentioned him a bunch. I mean, I'm guessing even a Tim Tebow probably could have gotten to clear a room unless Man, maybe Aaron- I love that kid. I, uh, I like, I was always, a f- now I loved him as an individual. Uh, his throwing motion made me nauseous as an offensive <laughs> lineman, uh, just because it was so awkward. I mean, like, uh, want a playoff know. game? Well, I, dude, I'm a huge Tebow, Tebow fan. I think that kid is, uh, like a one in a million, but like as a, uh, offensive lineman watching his throwing motion and how slow the release was. Like that plays hell, you know, I mean, as an offensive lineman, you want a quarterback that's got super quick feet, gets back into position, brings the ball up and just guns it and has a quick release. So that way dudes aren't jumping. They can start making stuff happen. When I'm watching Tebow on film, I'm like, oh my God, like, uh, (laughs) like he set up at five bounce, bounce, and then has this really weird duck motion. I'm like, dude, like it it was, uh, and what was amazing is that Nobody went in and was like, we need to take this kid aside and fix this throwing motion. We need to teach him to bring the ball straight up to his face and get rid of it. You know, that real loping, real slow throw he had, it was just a bad. But well, have you seen of, him jump past John? But what, <laughs> what the intangible is, is that kid was just a winner 
and had the ability to go out and lead people in success. And I was always amazed that the NFL was so quick to discount him and not put time into trying to, and I know when you get to the NFL, they're not trying to fucking develop anybody, but that there was nobody to take him aside and be like, if we fix this kid's throwing motion, which is good as an athlete he is, which we know he can do, why not take the time to put it in? Because this kid has got the intangibles that we fucking talk about. You know, that, I mean, he's the, the intangibles that coaches go out and, you know, this is who I could look for, you know? Yeah, and I always put him up on a pedestal. And, and that's the perfect captain. That's the perfect leader, but nobody's ever going to reach that, um, to a degree. I mean, it seemed like, and certainly I wasn't in the Florida locker rooms and I wasn't in, you know, the Denver Bronco locker rooms, but it seemed like he could get anybody to do pretty much anything, almost like Jedi mind trick. Um, you know, he was such a great leader. People respected him. Um, but I, I often thought that the Patriots would be the perfect place for him you know, being just a fan on the outside, sure. uh, figuring that Bill Belichick could probably be somebody that could utilize his skills and would love him in the locker room. But, but you know, you get what, 54 guys in the NFL and it's, it's uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's tough to make a roster at any point. So, uh, um, but you know, the, the, uh, the, what you were talking about with like the Bible thumpers, that kind of stuff, there are so many people out there that their actions are betraying their words. Yeah. And that just totally kills their leadership. People don't respect them. Or if they're a Christian, it, it totally gives the church or Bible a bad name. And it's like, we just need to be a little bit better. <laughs> we need to be better. And then we need to do our actions need to align with what we're saying or don't say it. Don't put yourself out there. And and we go back to what you said toward the start is these guys that that kind of get up there and, and rah, rah and tell everybody what to do, but they're not doing it themselves. Yeah. Um, you know, we've all been there and those guys aren't respected, but they're they're loud and, and they're irritating. And what we tried to do with all the teams that we were coaching and, and we ended up having a lot of success with this was getting people to to be good leaders of themselves, but then to lead their, their friends, lead their friends first. Um, and, and, you know, it didn't mean that they were never partying and it didn't mean they didn't do bad things. And it didn't mean we were perfect all the time, but we were better than we may have been otherwise. Um, if we only had the three captains and I ignored the rest of the team from a leadership standpoint. Is, I mean, is that like, um, I mean, and, and uh, I played on a lot of teams, uh, more I played on three, but, um, that was something that was universal in that, uh, you know, like there were, it was just kind of a weird deal. And then when I retired from the NFL, I realized, like you said, uh, that just isn't for professional sports. There's a lot of people out there pretending to be somebody they're not. I mean, look at social media. I mean, fuck, you turn on Instagram and everybody's putting out, you know, their best 1% is there every single day, you know, Oh, like here's me on the beach in Maldives every day. And it's like, fuck, like, that's not, uh, you know, I got three kids and a wife and we run a business and we do this. I mean, a lot of the day is not very sexy. Like, here's me cooking dinner for my kids, which isn't incredibly, you know, like a... a Just go live, dude. Uh, yeah, I know. But it's like, I... Um, so I shouldn't uh, put that image with me with the jet, my, my, the private jet that I photoshopped in or, or, <laughs> yeah, how or big went to jet? the airport. Where, yeah. uh, Charles, what did you call that the, uh, today? Uh, you called it... Um, uh, no, in front of the Camaro, you were like, this could be a, a flex. 
Yeah, so like posting a um, a buddy of mine, uh, Todd White, who's a uh, pretty famous artist. That, that's a flex right there. Yeah, John. he has a six. Right. Or, yeah, so he <laughs> he dropped his '69 Camaro off for me to do some uh, to, just to help him clean some stuff up. And uh, Charles, who's our producer, uh, is like, "Man, we should do a video on this. This would be the ultimate flex." And I was like, "Oh, like these dudes on Instagram that just go and they're like, oh, there's a Lamborghini. Let me part, you know, pose in front of this on my cell phone with like hashtag doing work." But, yeah, uh, grind, hustle, hustle, uh, yeah, grind. Hustle. Yeah, you you got to hustle so hard until your side hustle is your main hustle, and then you don't have to hustle so hard when you hustle. That's right. Yeah. Hashtag, yeah. hashtag, hashtag. Uh, yeah. But like, I mean, is this something that's uh, not just unique to professional sports, but this is unique to everybody? Just this disingenuous nature, where you know I'm going to put out this image of who I think people think I am, but when inside I'm really a fucking piece of shit. <laughs> I don't know about the last part, but we definitely, we definitely all, uh, well, most of us are, are human and most of us want to have, uh, accolades. We want recognition. We want to feed our ego. Um, we want people to think that we're something. And, and so we try to portray some kind of an image. Um, is that why you know? a guy like Tebow was so successful? Because the guy legitimately was the person that he was you know, standing up in front and being like, no, this is who I am. I really am this person. Certainly from a leadership standpoint. Uh, I mean, you don't get a locker room of, of guys, especially at the football level, especially at the high sec level to believe in you or even the Denver Broncos. I mean, you talk about offensive linemen and I don't have inside information. I don't know this, but you don't win a playoff game and you don't have some success if they don't believe in you a little bit as a quarterback. Now they might not like his throwing motion and they might be waiting for the general manager to get a better quarterback next year. But there was something there that they believed in him enough to block for him long enough or to have his back enough. So there, so there was something there with him from a leadership standpoint. Yeah. He, he had all these intangibles. I mean, and you, you hear like, you know, uh, but I also wonder if a big part of that was John Elway, whose ego is fucking bigger than Denver stadium. Uh, you know, is bigger than mile high. And, uh, you know, Elway, who was not only an incredible quarterback, had emotion. I mean, a lot of the intangibles. Is he up there as GM looking down and being like, you know what, uh, like, you know, was it something where he couldn't have, you know, be the GM of a team that had a kid that had a really awkward throwing motion and was like, you know, probably like, fuck this kid instead of looking at it and being like, wow, uh, this kid has all these intangibles that we talk about all the time. I bet you we can fix this thing and put a little time into developing him or, you know, I mean, cause he didn't come from, uh, you know, at, at, uh, uh, Florida. I mean, they weren't a huge, you know, pro style offense when they were doing it. So they never really right. had an opportunity to develop in them in that way. And but, coming from baseball. Well, a good leader is going to find ways to utilize, to maximize your talent and minimize your weakness. And, and one of the things I know the NFL is big on talent. You know, you, you still gotta, you gotta have talent. It's a business, but there still is those leadership components of a Tom Brady didn't come out of Michigan as the most talented guy. Now he obviously has talent. He, 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 without, without a doubt. Is that talent or grit? I mean, I, I think he, he he obviously has some talent and he doesn't just throw the ball 20 yards. I mean, he, he he can't. So, so he has a baseline of talent, but the intangibles that he has made him, uh, uh, made him as big as he is, took that talent and made him bigger. The intangibles Tim Tebow had took him from being a guy that shouldn't be in the NFL to being a guy that actually won a game in the playoffs. To, to build off that, his coach, Rick Dennison, was the offensive coordinator. In the first three games, they had quarterback Kyle Orton, 
who would air it out, and they were leading in passing offense. They were 3-0, and and Josh McDaniels was the head coach. From someone said, bench this 3-0 and quarterback. We're playing Tebow. Then Rick Dennison had to change the complete offense away from this high-flying Kyle Orton success to then mold it to put Tebow in the best position, like you were talking about, Jamie, to w- win and succeed. He was also the offensive line coach. So you had O-line coach who was also the offense coordinator that was able to just install an offense to find the best, put yeah, them in the well, best position to succeed. What's pretty fascinating, and this was something I observed when I when I was at the Patriots, uh, Andy Reid had a fucking playbook that looked like the New York telephone book. Um, <laughs> I know they're not telephone books anymore, but it was like we had so much. I mean, there, it, it was really uh, a pretty dense offense. When I went to the Patriots, uh, as I was going through their playbook, it reminded me a lot of the old Bruce Lee, don't fear the man with 10,000 kicks, fear the man who's practiced one kick 10,000 times. It was a very basic playbook. Uh, all the nuance came with like the receivers and the sets and all that. But I mean, it was simple and uh, you know, this is how we run the ball. This is how we're going to pass it. And it was, uh, there wasn't a ton of complexity and, uh, you know, there was a constant drilling of the basics and the fundamentals. Whereas I think for Andy's stuff, man, it was, uh, it was, it took me, you know, I started as a rookie, but really it was into that second year before it really took me on to like, understand like, Hey, this is you know, the breadth of the information. And there were, there were guys that never learned it. Uh, the guy I played next to um, never learned the playbook. And I used to bitch about it. And they were like, well, you just tell him what to do every play. He's making more money than you. So as soon as we walked out of the huddle, he's like, who we got? Every time, who we got, who we got? And I would tell him. And finally, I'm like, can I get half of his fucking money? I'm telling him what to do on every play. You, know? you were being a verbal leader. Great well, verbal leader there. Uh, that was a huge problem for me because, right. um, you know, like, hey, if I take the time for the preparation and I do all the little things and I'm out there fucking busting my ass every single day to have people show up who are making more money than me who aren't doing those things, that that was uh, something I couldn't, like, just fucking, oh, it, it's, it's fine, it's fine. And I think, like, uh, I probably, you know, I mean, obviously I got to play a decade. Like, I still think I should have been able to play longer if I, without some injury. But like that was the thing that really fucking smoked me is that there was this uh, sliding scale of accountability based on who you were. And um, I, dude, I, I think that, uh, you know, you have to do that maybe in the NFL with so many personalities and maybe in professional sports that LeBron James is treated differently than other people because he's LeBron James. But uh, I think that's the fucking death of teams. I really think it's a death of teams. It's a death of families. It's a death of everything where all of a sudden the rules are not unilateral that, hey, you know, because this person is a little special, they get treated. And I heard justification for years being like, well, you can't treat everybody the same. If they're special, you have to treat them special. And I always thought, fuck that. You know? Well, I don't I don't have uh, we're painting with a broad brush. I don't have a problem treating people differently, but. I want to make sure that I'm treating everybody in a great way, that they feel valued, that they feel significant. Um, and, and I know that sounds like foo-foo up in the clouds type stuff, but I want, I want John to know that when we just scored a touchdown, uh, you know, everybody, the dumbest fan in the stands knows that so-and-so just scored a touchdown. Uh, you know, in the media, I don't need to say, yeah, this this guy, man, he he rushed for 220 yards today, three touchdowns. He had a great game. Yeah, n- no kidding. But I need as a coach, as a leader, I need to be p- pumping you up, propping you up. Hey, this guy, this guy had a great game, 
but that was because the big hosses up front, those big nasties, they were creating holes for him. Or I knew he was going to have a good game because all week our offensive line has been locked in. They knew their assignments. They've been doing well. John has been, John's been a leader on that line. And, and that you might need to do that a few times, but your guys will start seeing it. You would start seeing that if your coaches were, were, you know, obviously you want money at the NFL level. I mean, you still want a piece of that money, but if you're not going to get a piece of that money, you definitely want to know that, Hey, I'm recognized. I'm significant. And especially the younger you go college, high school, especially uh, youth leagues, man, don't just praise the dude that just scored 30 points in a basketball game. Praise some guys that, that set those screens, praise the guy that, that took that charge with six seconds to go in the game that even got you the ball back. So you could hit a game winner praise those people that don't get praised oftentimes because when we don't as leaders our players pick up on that and then all of a sudden it's like you're you're telling us team 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 all the time but Steph Curry is the only one you're ever praising you're never praising the guy that passes him a ball or the guy that sets a screen yeah I mean uh, uh, Steph Curry would be great to have on a team but I also wonder about those guys on that team how they have to make concessions to realize like well, he's the big money guy, and he's just going to fucking air these threes out. But he's going to well, make if, about ninety five percent of them, and we're going to win some games. So, like, if I, anyone could communicate that, it's Steve Kerr, uh, Michael Jordan's former teammate. Yeah, no, I yeah, that's true. But like, uh, I, I, like, whenever I see uh, like like watching play, like dribbles down the court, passing the ball, and I'm fucking shooting it from like four feet back from the three point line and draining it. And what's great is everybody just sprints back and is like, "Woo, we're winning games." Yeah, he Fucking. is amazing. So so that's probably not the best example, but he's absolutely amazing with that. But, uh, you know, as, it's as unreal. Leader, like, I mean, yeah. like I would have to pull up the percentage, but it's like every time he shoots the ball, you're like, it's fucking in. Like, I, I, I can probably count the amount of times I've seen him miss. Well, and, and you, uh, you know, as you were, we were talking about Tebow, good leaders have to find ways to maximize the talent, you know, I've said it, maximize your strengths, minimize your weakness. If I have a basketball player that can't dribble with their left hand, then I sure as sugar shouldn't put them in a position where they have to dribble off of a ball screen with their left hand. That's bad coaching. Now, am I working on their left hand in the off season or am I working on that behind the scenes? Yeah, probably. But in the meantime, I need to make sure that my plays or our plays or our system doesn't put them in a position where they can't utilize or do what they do best. And so, you know, it, should Tim Tebow be dropping back 45 times in a game? Probably not, no. unless you want to rush 45 times. Yeah. You know, you've got to design stuff that that meets your your system or meets your personnel. And and a lot of times leaders don't do that. I, I had a stud. I had a stud hotshot freshman that for the first part of her freshman year, I was banging my head against the wall because she was wrecking my plays, ruining my plays all the time because she'd catch the ball. And instead of passing it where she was supposed to, according to my plays, she'd go try to score. Well, I recruited her because she scored a bajillion points a game in high school. She was a natural born scorer, but here I was putting her in a position to just pass the ball, you know, Mm -hmm. here, Hey, wild stallion. Let's, uh, let's hook you up to a uh, a buggy. And, you know, you're just going to take people to church every Sunday. You know, I was putting her in a position that she was frustrated with and I was definitely going to be frustrated with. And so a good leaders got to evaluate and, and be coachable themselves and realize, hey, I've got how can I take all these people, these pieces and make them fit for this great puzzle? Uh, spe- I want to get to now building your team. You were the head coach. You were assistant coach of numerous 
opportunities. But when you had the chance to build your coaching staff, your your leaders, assistants, what was that mindset and approach? We've had Ron, Coach Ron McKeefer on, who's mm-hmm. a strength coach for, currently at Fresno State, and he introduced this idea. He's not going to recruit new Coach Rons, Coach Max, to help him out. He went for uh, Lion, which is good at making decisions, very goal-oriented, a beaver, organized, process-oriented, in honor, very social, loves people, having fun, and a golden retriever. Easygoing, loyal, good at making friends. Those are the roles that he would look for his strength and conditioning staff. Did you take any similar approach? <laughs> Did you look for a similar coach Jamie's that didn't like Pop? What did you do? <laughs> I wanted honey badgers. I want yeah, just, just a team of honey just, badgers. Makes yeah, sense. bunch coaching staff of honey badgers. No, you know, the interesting thing, uh, one thing that I regret, my my coaching career, we had I had a lot of great assistants. We had a lot of uh, great years. I never had a full-time basketball assistant. I had full-time coaches, but they were teachers or they coached two sports at the, at the college because I spent most of my career at small college. So I never had an assistant that was only a basketball coach for me. Uh, but I tried to go about it, the process of, of selecting a coach, the process of training a coach and, and equipping them the same way, even if I had had a full-time assistant. So let's say I have a resident hall assistant, a resident hall director, who's also the assistant basketball coach. Um, I went about it the same way. And I tried to find people that filled in my gaps that did, uh, that were really good at the things that I wasn't good at or didn't want to do. Um, you know, I was pretty good at recruiting, but I didn't want to do recruiting toward the end of my career. Um, not that I'm an old guy, but I didn't want to recruit. So I eventually had an assistant coach who was actually an AAU coach for one of the biggest programs in Tennessee. And he was at all these, and this is when I was at the NAIA level. So it was all legal and everything. He was already at the biggest tournaments. He was already coaching there. So he would get the packets for free. Um, He would, he would go to all these tournaments and I could go to the beach and not have to go recruiting as much in the summer. My golf game was better um, because I had somebody, not that I couldn't recruit, I had had a lot of success as a recruiter. I just didn't want to. And he loved it. He loved recruiting. Um, So you try, I think you find people that fill in the gaps of either what you don't want to do or what you can't do very well, but they definitely have to be on board with your overall vision for the program. Um, Their terminology might not be the same. Their exact philosophy on offense and defense shouldn't be the same, but their overall vision of, all right, we want this player in our program. We want these kind of team members in our program. This is what we're looking for. Okay. If our kids are getting in trouble or they're not going to class, this is a problem. That's not what we want. Um, And these are the things that are non-negotiable for me as a, as a head coach of this program. And so you want to get people that are, that are in the same boat or on, on board with you. Um, You know, they might not be on the same page, but they're at least in the same book. And then, you know, especially if you have a younger assistant, you can you can work with them because um, they might have different philosophies on, let's say, discipline. Um, they might they, they might have different uh, a take on recruiting strategy, but they're going to understand they're in the same book. You know, they're like, OK, I understand we are looking for this. This is how I think we should go about this or this is how I think we should identify these kind of people. And then it's like, OK, 
Uh, you made a great point. I'll, I'll go with that. So you try to, I said it earlier, try to find people that are smarter than you if possible. That always my goal, find people smarter than me. Um, I did not want to be the smartest person on my bench. Um, but I would, I would train up just like you equip and train your players, you equip and train your coaches, what you want. You know, if I asked Tex, if you're my assistant, I ask you during a game, what do you think about this situation? I don't need you to give me a five minute answer. And I don't need you to, to argue with me right then necessarily. I, I, I just need you to give me a quick synopsis. So you need to be thinking, you need to be thinking like me, you need to, you need to start that was the other thing. As, uh, as I think about this, I wanted assistants that just didn't want to be assistants. I wanted assistants who wanted to be head coaches or at least yeah. wanted to think like head coaches. That's a, a similar thought that Ron or coach Mac preaches. He's never, he's hiring future head coaches, strength coaches. That's one of his big things along with these roles, which is cool. My dad used to tell me, uh, if you're the smartest student in the room, go find new rooms. Yeah, and then, uh, absolutely. And, and then the other one, and I've told it before on the podcast, he'd always told me, um, uh, don't get to the point where you're holding your fan club meetings in a phone booth. <laughs> if, if, if you're your biggest fan, and you know, like, I always thought that was funny, like, don't and, hold your meetings in a phone booth. No, absolutely. And one of the reasons <laughs> I became a, I was an NCAA head coach at the age of 27, uh, one of the youngest coaches in the country. And one of the reasons I had gotten that to that point was because I was a good assistant coach, but not just because I was a good assistant coach, but as an assistant, I wanted to be, think like the head coach. I immersed myself in, I, I was essentially attached at the hip to my head coach. I, I would drive them to the airport. I would drive them anywhere they wanted to go. I wanted to ask questions. I wanted to know why you dished out this punishment to this person this way and this way to another person, not because I was smarter than them, not because I was challenging them, I just wanted to know because I wanted to be as prepared as possible to be a head coach. And I don't think you're ever ready to be a head coach. Just like, I don't think you're ever ready to be married. I think you're more prepared to be ready or more prepared to be married. I think you're more prepared to be a head coach. I don't think you're ever truly ready. And so I wanted to be as prepared as possible when I did take over as a head coach. And so I, my whole philosophy, my whole mindset was I might be the assistant, but I'm going to do head coach things. I'm going to have a philosophy. I'm going to have the mentality of being a head coach um, and start thinking that way. I, I don't, you know, I would go out recruiting and I would see all these assistant coaches just going out, getting drunk all the time and, and, you know, just hanging out. And, and it was almost like a frat house or a sorority house. And, and first of all, there's future head coaches in that gymnasium that are watching you and they're not going to hire you because they don't want to hire you. And then they know what you're going to do when they send you out recruiting. Mm -hmm. But secondly, I was like, they're not, they're not making their program better. They're just having fun. And there's, there's a place for fun, but my goal was to be a head coach by the age of 30 or by the age of 32 was my goal. And I smashed that. Um, my goal was to be a head coach by the age of 32. And I wanted to do everything possible to put myself in a position to do that. And, and, acting like a frat boy wasn't going to be get me a head coaching job at a unique coaching start as well my lacrosse head coach he was 28 years old division three and then he would lean on us as captains to figure out what the hell's going on because he jumped from high school this was his first coaching gig and then eventually three years later i got the opportunity to be a grad assistant coach on the same team so we had this this six-year relationship where we got to grow as leaders and coaches all at the same pace but similar young coach 
And then like his first semester, a kid like cops showed up to practice. He had probably a very uh, interesting turmoil experience because of our dumbass team that first year. (laughs) You know, I mean, uh, I I think people don't realize that um, things like that, like like we were talking about the Deshaun Watson deal, like things like that and that turmoil can absolutely destroy a fucking team. You know, I mean, even if it's a like, you know, not maybe a major player on the team, maybe like a B player, but like when you're face of your franchise, uh, you know, I mean, you know, Nike drops him the face of the franchise, this situation. I mean, like, you know, and then they, you know, lose uh, JJ Watt. Like, uh, like I'm looking at that and I'm like, either these guys are going to the Super Bowl next year or these guys ain't winning the game. Oh, well, I'm hoping for Super Bowl. So, uh, you know, maybe, who knows, maybe this adversity bonds them together and, like, all of a sudden people step up and realize, like, hey, this is our opportunity, opposed from, you know, people just kicking a can around the room. Well, they got Tyrod Taylor as the backup quarterback who's been kicked around. He was on hard knocks when Baker Mayfield was a rook. Mm. And then last year on hard knocks, and this uh, kid, Justin Herbert, came in. So, like, he only lost his starting job. I don't know if you, you saw this, Jamie. But uh, he was getting some form of shot in the ribs for a broken rib. And that mm. shot, the painkiller, oh, yeah. punctured his lung. Punctured his lung. Couldn't play. Herbert Pre-game. comes in yep. and is this all-rookie kid. And, uh, okay, goodbye, sir. So now the Houston Texans got him. Yeah, no. I'm, That's a story. I'm surprised on that doctor that they would use that long a needle. I mean, normally if they shoot. And I know this because I tore an intercostal. like the, It's a little tiny one. They're like, hit it on real superficial. Yeah, that was unfortunate. Is uh, Hard Knocks going to Houston? Because if they are, oh no, 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 they're, yeah, we don't they're want, in trouble. Yeah, I don't want we'll, that. It, we'll I'll call t- that Hard Tyrod would be in trouble. Oh, yeah. well, dude, the, the Hard Knocks with Bill O'Brien and JJ Watt, they must have been just putting on a little Instagram cameras rolling show because I thought they were awesome. Yeah, I thought it was a great coach, and now the stories <laughs> have come out. Like it, Sports Illustrated ran a couple yeah. s exposés. On the team that are very interesting reads, Jamie. If you got time, easy easy finds. Uh, I got a couple more fun questions, John. If bang them out, let's go. Else. No, I got them. yeah. Uh, have you read Jamie the book Boys Boys Among Men, all about the NBA? This ten year span where high schoolers got drafted and jumped to the league. I have not, dude. Not yet. Put it put it on your list. There are so many stories. It's a chapter a player, and they talk about Kevin Garnett. So successful dudes. Uh, Kwame Brown, who had to walk into Michael Jordan, and then guys <laughs> that neither any of us have ever heard of. So I'm sure you may know these guys as top picks as a basketball coach, but at the same time, I have no idea who this person is, but the intriguing downfall spiral of of them. But then they talk about T-Mac, who went to Toronto Raptors, and how well an organization they are, because they had a team mom, to help T-Mac handle millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. And uh, Vince Carter was his cousin, so yep. they had all these t- pieces in place to help these young men succeed. But then another team would copy that, oh, you took this kid? We're going to take this other kid because Kevin Garnett was awesome, but they have no structure in place, and then you just feel bad for the stories that fall I, for the kids. I mean, it's hard not being an 18-year-old kid in college, let alone being in the NBA. I can't even... Like when I saw that kid, I mean, because that was Kobe Bryant. I mean, jumped right yep. from college. So they talk and, about Kobe as well. Yeah, I mean, but like it, it's such a crapshoot. I mean, think about like the family structure, the team that they go to, how that all kind of fits. It's it's an amazing read. Highly recommend for anybody that basketball fan or not. Uh, then my final question here: favorite fictional coach of all time. 
Wow. Well, you are a fiction coach writer now. Yeah. Uh, um, well, obviously the one in my book. No. Um, <laughs> my book, the coach in my book, the bus trip, by the way, the bus trip book.com. No, uh, he's kind of neutered. He's not necessarily good or bad. He's, he's in the middle. You know, he does some things that it's like, uh, that's not good coaching. And then he does other things that it's like, oh, that's, that's, he, he means well. So I, I, I didn't want him to be a central figure in the book. But anyways, um, gosh. Well, we got, we can throw some options your way. We got well, Coach Boone from Remember the Titans. He mm-hmm. sounds like Belichick's playbook. Six plays, strict like Novocaine, always works. Yep. Uh, we got, yeah. I don't want to give away my favorite one, but we got player coach uh, from Jackie Moon's team, well, Woody Harrelson. Yeah. 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 I love uh, semi-pro is one of my favorite movies. I, I think it is very underrated for a Will Ferrell movie. It never gets talked about as one of the, the best. Um, I like the Bud Light commercials, but what about um, Al Pacino? In, oh, uh, any given Sunday. That's another great one. Then we have Hoosiers coach. Who, uh, who was that? That was um, Gene Hackman. Gene Hackman. Yeah. Um, I've always been a Gene Hackman fan. I'm, I'm probably going to go. Uh, I'm probably going to go Chubbs from Happy Gilmore. Damn it. That was mine. Uh, Best fictional right? coach all of all time. Yes. Just a tiny tap, a little tap, tap, taparoo. Real sturdy. Made of wood. I mean, he sacrificed the ultimate, you know, to help, to have, to help Happy. So uh, uh, My counter to him being, I love, I love every one of his quotes, <clears throat> but him just sitting there when this, uh, he's reading a golf magazine and this, he's hiding his hand, of course, but then this girl is just chopping and swinging away the hips and he's like there you go good (laughs) job and then he hears (laughs) happy gilmore swing or something and then he he looks up uh similar woody harrelson's also a coach in kingpin yeah yeah. he may be just the the he may be the best coach Uh, actor yeah from scranton ohio or from scranton pa (laughs) well there's so many uh, same place as tom canavy so many fl- uh, fictional coaches, but they're all flawed. I'm thinking all the flaws oh, yeah. of the of these coaches. But, uh, well, but you know, uh, one, is that James what people Co- want? I mean, you know, isn't that really in the well, story? Because like we are a, flawed. Yeah, we are flawed. But uh, I thought of uh, not necessarily because he's flawed, but James Caan in the program. Oh, yeah. Just oh, yeah. because that movie has <laughs> literally like every stereotype and every negative thing that oh, you can associate is, with a football program. Yeah, his daughter is knocked up coach. by the... Oh, he's, she's taking Joe Kane's test. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, can I get your name, please? Joe Kane, the yeah, starting literally Division everything one quarterback? Bad, yeah, everything bad you can think of was in that movie, and he was the head coach that had to handle it all. Dude, he's good it, at being mad. It, it's... <laughs> Yeah, I, well, so when uh, when we were in college, the program came out, and uh, yep. I remember yep. we watched it, and we're like, how are we going to play on this team? Well, it's Florida State University. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Eastern Kane State. Kane is able. Kane is able. That's yeah, I was playing best. Division I was playing Division three football, and our whole team went to watch that, and um, yeah, we couldn't relate to ha- some of it, but... Did, what, uh, did you win the next game? Did you guys see the... Uh, in, no. in the original cut we saw, after they left the bar, then they laid down in traffic... Like they laid in like the center lane and the mm-hmm. cars going by and they were screaming. And then of course some dipshit high school kids went out there and they got hit by yep. cars and then they cut that part out. So that, so that part's cut from anything. History. You've yeah, seen it from though. history. Oh, I remember we were like, oh my God. People don't forget. Ah, uh, dude, that was, yeah. <laughs> I remember that in Blade. We, we went and saw Blade as a team. And uh, cause we used to do, uh, we used to go to a movie. Um, I can't remember if we always did movies, but on occasion we went to a movie in college the night before a game and we saw Blade. 
And dude, we killed the team the next day. I was like, let's see Blade every week. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. We did three hundred. Uh, well, I love sports movies, and and in fact, I, I there's a number of years where I was a professor of sports management. <laughs> at a college and we actually had a class that was sports movies. Shut like the, the whole class, the whole class was just movies. And we literally, each kid was responsible for one day that we watched a movie in that class and they had to lead the discussion. It was all about movies. Dude, mm. I'm, I'm enlisting there. What, uh, um, I mean, rolling. what would be your favorite fictional coach? You said Chubbs or are you going I, with? I'll take that back now that Jamie said Chubbs. <laughs> I don't want to both be on that. I mean, freaking Mick. What's that? Blue Mountain State. Blue Mountain State. Have you seen that show? All of, it's I, not I've D3, ne- but. I've never oh, seen that. Oh, it's an awesome one. No. Um, all, oh, man. I don't, the manager from Moneyball. That guy sucks. Um, <laughs> man. I mean, obviously, I love the guy great. from Miracle. Um, well, uh, yeah. Her, Her, Her Brooks. Kurt Russell's he, representation is. Yeah. Yeah, because I mean, I, I don't want I don't want the best players. I want the right players. You know, I mean, that spoke to me culture. You know, he built up a great program, even in a an Olympic. So that was cool, and and he played it really well. Um, uh, but I'm also, also a huge golf fan, so so any any golfing yeah, reference I can get in. There's also The Rock in the Gridiron Gang. <laughs> uh, I don't think I ever saw the Gridiron Gang. Yeah, it's all right. It's what you'd expect. Yeah. Yeah. Remember the Titans a little bit better, Jamie. Have you seen the the Way Back, the new Ben Affleck movie? <laughs> no, I have not. Dude, take the time. He's a washed up drunk basketball coach. Oh, so yeah. he's really not stretching that far in terms of. Uh, oh no, it's uh, like the perfect role because he's, <laughs> I don't want to give the story away, but it involves rehab. Uh, uh, so it, it's it's perfect. For so him. he's a method actor then. So he's been preparing for this <laughs> for this role his whole life. You could argue that. Yeah. You know, I mean, just like in uh, Goodwill Hunting, he played exactly who they just a Southie so, bum. Yeah. <laughs> I am probably I'm probably the only person in the United States that's watched less Netflix and less movies during the pandemic than before. Good, uh, do more writing, which which uh, is we, crazy. We did not have Netflix until pandemic hit. Uh, I still and then uh, and then we we ended up getting it, and then um, probably about a month ago. Uh, the like so we have like a I don't know cable box there's like a clicker and then there's like another clicker for the TV that's how you get to the Netflix with like their little carousel uh, I just straight up broke it <laughs> so and the kids are like oh the clicker for the Netflix doesn't work anymore and I'm like it's broken and so like every week the kids would be like hey did you order or find a new clicker and I'm like yeah yeah it's on back order don't worry about it I just straight up fucking smashed it like I like they would. Uh, it, it just became after pandemic, like they would come home from school, we play. And then when the pandemic deal or uh, the lockdown, they just kind of got into this like virtual school and then let's watch them. T- like they just, it was so weird how it completely conditioned them. And now like there's, you know, whatever, like I got rid of the DVR, there's nothing. So it's like, ah, it's broken. You guys have to just go outside and shoot hoops or go do something. And we, right. we live next door to a, a horse riding school. So my daughter rides every day, which is great. And then my other daughter would go out and play basketball and fuck around. I have my final answer. Oh, okay. Here he is. I was, I was giving him a little bit of, I was you know, stalling <laughs> for him. I'm going Billy Bob Thornton in Friday Night Lights. Oh. So this, this, Bill, uh, wasn't that uh, John um, Friday Night? Uh, no, I'm, I'm thinking uh, Varsity Blue was with John. John Voight. John Voight. Okay. Not yes, yeah, not Billy Bob Thornton, not Angelia Jolie's father, her husband, <laughs> her ex-husband, ah, one-time okay. husband. Okay. 
Yes, but dude, he he gives some of the the best speeches in there, and it turned out it was improvised, where he talks to these guys about being perfect. So they're about yeah. to uh, about to go into that that final matchup, which in the movie is the state championship, but in real life is the the semifinal game that they end up losing. Mm-hmm. But dude, but the one speech that stuck out from there, he's taken his quarterback home. Because dude's got an effed up home life, and he's got to give him rides to games. And he's giving him a ride back from the game, and the kid is just talking like, you know, you ever feel like you're cursed, and all this weight is on him because the community is killing this kid, and he's got he's taking care of his mom at home and all this, and then Billy Bob just turns to him and he's like, "Ain't no curses," and gets him going <laughs> and back to it, and then that replays because they go to a coin toss to even make the playoffs because of the division yep. how it broke down three three way tie. Turns to the kid, he's got to flip the coins like, ain't no curses. Flips the coin, they ended up winning, and then go to the playoffs to then wrap up the movie. But oh, badass. the speech, you, you got to listen to that, and it talks about being perfect. Somebody had gave him that similar speech during his acting career, and he just went off the cuff when they were filming, and, and man, it hits. Mm. It's that easy. It's that e- leadership and coaching that easy. Just to ain't, have, ain't just no to, curses. Yeah, just having a magic can speech that you can drop on these kids and fucking blow their minds. Well, uh, th- that's dude. Co- uh, <laughs> so when I played at Cal, Steve Mariucci was our head coach oh, for one year, yeah. and uh, he came in uh, before practice, or no, it was before. I can't remember if it was in. A, yeah, it was before a game, and they like brought in this like old rusty hand pump, like you would pump for water. And he grew up in Steel Mountain, Michigan. And he yep. was telling the story about um, going out and like, you know, they had gone like, I guess they had bought like, a, or his dad had like an old cabin or something and they went out there as kids and there was no running water. And so his dad's like, hey, you got to go over and pump that handle until water comes out. And so he, he's going over and he and his brother like pumping, pumping, pumping. And he's like in this dramatic story and they're like, dad, it's not working. He's like, well, you got to prime the pump. On the pump. And you got to put you got to put water in there. So they pour some water, and these kids are pumping, and he's telling this story, and it was an incredible story he told. And all of a sudden, he's talking about water starts gushing out, and it's you know the cleanest, best water he's ever had, and it's like this metaphor. And he gave this fucking impassioned, just amazing speech, and uh, um, like it, like we ended up going out and like playing really well and winning the game, whatever. And so then uh, he left, went to the Niners, and then it was years later. I was at the combine. And I see him and we're sitting there talking and I was like, man, I, I still tell people about that speech. He's like, what speech? I was like, the one about the water pump. And uh, he just laughed. He's like, you know, I made that whole fucking thing up. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And uh, I was fucking shattered. Like I, I, I had this like, I mean, the imagery and the way he told it was so good. He's like, I practiced that speech a million times. And he's like, to the point where I went out to some old uh, secondhand store and bought that pump, had it mounted and would bring it in just for the effect of it. And I was like, did you just make that up? He's like, no, nah, I stole it from somebody. Some, some, somebody had told me a story and I just made it my own. It's like and when I you found like, out about Santa Claus. Uh, I was, um, I actually don't really, rem- I don't really remember believing in Santa Claus because okay. I, older, I, I had okay. older brothers and they told me at such a young age that like, okay. I just kind of like, I, I don't really like, what's crazy is my daughters are nine. And they still believe in Santa Claus. And my wife and I are like, how long can we keep this going? Because I don't ever remember believing. Well, but, the elf on the shelf, John. Oh, You're fuck, doing this to yourself. Fuck, fucking elf on the shelf. Hey, the elf on the shelf works, man. Dude, my kid, it does. My kid listens to Yeah, he'll do any. It's not about God's looking. It's not about parents are going to whoop his butt. It's the elf on the shelf. Yeah. It's all about that. 
Well, well, the problem is, is we, we got one elf and then my one daughter kind of like adopted it as her elf. She got to name it. And then we had to get a second elf for my other daughter. And then my son was like, can I get an elf? And I'm like, no, 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 no. You're not getting an elf. And if you uh, vacation during Christmas, you got to take that thing with you. Oh, uh, it's, it's awful. It's and then you're tough, up there trying but... to like sneak around. And, and then the problem was my, like the kids were like, go to bed. And my wife and I were so tired, we'd fall asleep. And then you're waking up at like four in the morning, running in there, trying to find different ways to put it in. And then I got on like Instagram and like Pinterest and these fucking overachieving creative parents are like creating castles and like boxes and doing all this stuff. I'm like, oh God, I'm just can't even get them on a Christmas tree. But um, yeah, Steve, Steve yeah. Mariucci was told a hell of a story and like absolutely like when he just kind of scoffed at it and I was like, ah, oh. and then I saw him at Tony Gonzalez's Hall of Fame deal and I was like, hey, what's up, pump boy? He's like, fuck you. <laughs> I was like, what are you over there? I was like, you still lying and telling people about that story, you piece of shit? No, I got on his ass. And well, I'm at like, least he, yeah. At least he wasn't Jackie Sherrill, and you were at Texas A and M and castrate a bull. What was what? the story? What Tell was us. when uh, uh, I don't know all the details, but Jackie Sherrill got in a lot of trouble years ago when he was coaching at Texas A and M, and he castrated a bull for uh, for a pregame for a motivational thing. Did they? Yeah. Win? I don't know if they won. Um, so I they brought know. in a bull. So and a great. He this is a great. Yeah, it's a great story, right, for me to bring up and not have all the details. That's good radio. That's well, good podcast. Well, you know what? Why don't you just fill in where you think the details should go, and nobody will know the, be the yeah, wife. Yeah, fact, fact checkers. You guys got fact checker, right, producer? Uh, no. Uh, let me Google. People are just excited just to take part in the story. Well, yeah, so I just killed that conversation. Uh, no, I'm, I'm waiting for you to tell me your version. That's all I know is that Jackie Sherrill... So he brought in a bull in in pregame. Apparently, threw a tight rubber band on there, let a little circulation, then just lopped. It may have been pregame, or it may have been like the uh, day before the game. And what happened? People were outraged. Yes, yes, and that was even before outrage culture or social media. Tex, you got it on. You you look it up. Are you fact fact checking me? Yeah, I need sixty seconds to read this and then give you the summary. Well, just okay. Well, during that sixty seconds, I can tell you that I, you said you just got Netflix, John. Yeah. I had Netflix when it was a DVD service. One DVD, wow. you got one DVD at a time, and you had to send it back when you were done with that DVD. Wow. Back back in the early two thousands when they first came out. I uh, so um, I didn't own a TV in college. We were so fucking below the poverty line that like, you know, having cable TV was you know we I think we had a TV, but it had like the rabbit ears. And like, you know, so uh, like I didn't watch TV all through college. And then um, uh, when I went to the NFL, I didn't buy a TV. And then when I I ended up buying a house, my mom came to visit. And my mom actually was like, this is weird that you don't have a TV. What are you going to do, sit around and read? And I'm like, yeah, it's what we do. We play games. We got that, you know. So she went out and actually bought me my first TV on my credit card, mind you. Uh, But because, uh, you know, and then we, uh, then that year we got gifted a whole bunch of like, I want to say, um, say uh, PlayStations or something. Yep. And so, you know, we got one game, which was Halo. So I used to play that. But yeah, but for the most part, uh, I've never been a, a like a huge TV fan. Like I don't mind going and watching a movie, but I'm not going to like turn on the TV and like flip around and watch fucking non- nonsense. So it, it's just, it, the problem with Netflix is like, one, they like have every show season, like, you know, hey, like here's the next 27 seasons. And then as soon as you finish one, it like, Two seconds later, another one starts. And next thing I look and I'm like, have you idiots got off the couch? It's been like three hours. Oh, we're only on this third show and there's 27 more seasons. And I'm like, God damn it. I mean, but, but, but under quarantine, there was, there was really nowhere to go. 
So I like I I did it, but then they just kind of got into that until I busted the clicker. Okay, are we ready? Yeah. Yeah. It was the 1992 season. It was Jackie Sherrill, then head coach of Mississippi State. Mississippi State All playing right. the University of Texas. So they the vet. Oh, the that's vet, why they castrated the bull. That yeah, makes sense. Vent, uh, veterinary school came in with the bull, and yeah, Jackie Sherrill castrates it in front of the whole football team. And the Bulldogs, Mississippi State Bulldogs, went on to beat the Longhorns 28-10. to 10. So it worked. Yeah. <laughs> but, he, but he got in trouble for it. Uh, yeah, big time, but not as as much as he would have today. Oh, yeah, today. today it would have been done. Well, there had been video, lots of video of it today. And, uh, yeah, outrage culture would have killed him. But I'm glad I wasn't, I'm glad I wasn't uh, spewing 100% urban myth on that, urban legend on that. I'm glad that uh, you fact-checked me. I felt like, I feel, I feel like we were on Joe Rogan right now, and you I, just put that up on the screen, and we, we got to the bottom of it right now. Uh, uh, if it was Rogan, we'd have the video. Uh, I'm a little, uh, I'd, like, I, I was putting myself, I'm like, man, if I was on that team, how hyped would I have been? I would have been super hyped. I would have been like, fucking do, do right. some crazy shit. Bevo. Yeah, let's yeah. do this to Bevo. Yeah, yeah no, it's, actually. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I mean, like, um, I wonder if today people, I mean, when we, we know this is the case, you brought it up with this outrage culture. I mean, people are searching for things to be outraged about. I mean, bulls get castrated. I'm, I like the fact that they did it before a game is even fucking better, but I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if no. I'd be upset about that. I'd be like, "Fucking what a story to tell." I, I would have been, I would have been jacked. I would have been hyped because that's a rival. It's not like it's not like Southwest Louisiana or whatever. I, yep. I mean, it's not like it's some some no, you know, sisters of the poor school. It's it's a you know, uh, I don't know if it was they were in the conference. They probably weren't. Not Mississippi State was, was still in the SEC. Yeah, or they were I mean, in the SEC then. They weren't in the old SW Southwestern Conference or whatever it was then. But I mean, UT was a powerhouse back then. Oh yeah, yeah. But I, that would have been a big game for Mississippi State. And and yeah. I'm thinking, was that before? I'm wondering if that was after Jackie Sherrill because he was at Texas A&M. Correct. So she, his career, he went Texas A&M, then to Mississippi State. Did he go so anywhere it, after that? After he castrated the bull? Oh well, I mean, no. Twenty two thousand three was his last year coaching. So after that bull castration, he had ten more years <laughs> pregame speeches. That who <laughs> knows what he killed? Yeah. <laughs> How do you live up to that one? But, uh, but yeah, UAB coming from Dragons? Texas A&M, coming from Texas A&M, I'm sure he had more, uh, you know, Animosity. it meant more to him. Yeah, yeah. So it it, it was real to him coming from Texas A&M to Mississippi yeah. State. And uh, yeah, that was a big game for Mississippi State probably. Well not. I mean, hey. Hey, that season they went seven and five. Uh, I'm a little upset that this is the first time I'm learning of this. Oh, yeah. Like that's, uh, he might be my favorite head coach now. <laughs> or my favorite fictional head coach, even though he's not well. Well, I love he's the Mariucci. I mean, oh, I like dude. them both. I, you know, a, a coach that uh, pulls a little something out of his hat that's not true. Dude, it, I, I have never been so crushed in my life. When I when I heard that, I was like, like you, you hit it on like like here in Santa Claus. And then the funny yeah. part is, uh, you know, I see him all these years later. I'm like, you still lying to people about that pump story? He's like, fuck you. Well, Jackie Sherrill, he coached Dan Marino in college at Pitt. Hmm. Mm. Yeah. Now I'm not advocating for coaches to lie. 
into makeup stuff. I'm not advocating, nor am I advocating uh, for all you PETA listeners. I know you have a big following with PETA. I'm not, <laughs> no. I'm not. Uh, What's the opposite of big? Wow. Uh, I'm, I, I'm not advocating would... for those people to, I'm not advocating uh, castrating no, bulls either. There was a, uh, like on occasion, there was a vegan that used to follow me on social media. <laughs> and then I would post like, hey, like, you know, some like pro protein stuff or, you know, or, or pro protein. That's a great hashtag. Yeah, pro pro protein. But really, pro like pro. the idea that like the standard narrative that uh, you know uh, meat production is going to destroy the planet is fucking just space cadet shit. And like um, the the one that I got in, into a battle with the vegans on was this guy wrote a really interesting article that if it's about um, uh, like uh, you know like the least harmful diet, and if you really are a fan of animals. Like the least blood-soaked diet on the planet is a diet of pasture-raised meat and um, you know backyard vegetables, and went through this whole thing. And it was like this is the the least detrimental if you're looking at trying to minimize the impact of death on animals. Now the most blood-soaked diet is uh, a vegan diet because the uh, you know the plowing of the fields for the beans and all the things that all these little animals. And you know mm-hmm. uh, we had a guy who was uh, actually a farmer who follows power athlete. He's like, oh, yeah, no. He goes, um, at the end of every time I go down the row to try to, like, you know, uh, basically harvest these crops, we have to get out and pull all the dead bodies of all the different animals that we've killed. Everything from, like, ground nesting birds to squirrels to deer. I mean, he's like, dude, it is absolutely uh, a fucking massacre every single time we, we, we run these combines and we pull it up because this is their food source. And he, he put it, he's like, dude, if, uh, if the vegans saw how blood-soaked their diet was, they wouldn't eat this way. And this guy wrote a really interesting article about it and, you know, how greenhouse gases, are, you know, just went through this whole thing. And so I posted it and, uh, you know, obviously somebody that follows me fucking just flipped out and then I started getting attacked by all these fucking vegans who, um, you know, make just basically nonsensical article uh, arguments. Um, but... Yeah. So well, a hundred years good. from now, John, your statues are going to be torn down because you eat meat and you played football. Yep, and that's like going to be weights. totally unacceptable to uh, the culture a hundred years from now. I really believe that uh, everything will swing. I think we're in this pendulum, and I think when something swings too far, something happens to swing us back. And uh, you know, we're you know, there's that definitely old saying that uh, you know, hard times make strong men. Strong men make good times. Good times make weak men. I think we're in that cycle right now. And uh, what's pretty pretty amazing is uh, how outraged people are by just searching for anything to be outraged because I think life has become so easy that people are constantly searching for hardship. So they're looking for all of these like micro hardships and have, you know, be up in arms and everything. And I'm like, if you get up every day and you got to walk five miles to get water and, you know, like it's... Uh, you know, I think we're just have created so much convenience that people don't have anything to be upset about. So they're creating imaginary things with social media. Yeah. We've, we have got to get back to walking 10 miles to school every day, uphill both ways in the snow. We we will. I mean, uh, I I mean, every, I mean, we we had uh, uh, John Sapolsky on, um, you know, who's a pretty awesome marine biologist, but he was talking about mass extinctions and all this. And he's like, you know, every time that a mass extinction hits, you know, life crawls back out from the oceans. But he's like, it, it's happened five or six, seven times. It's going to happen again. And then we hit the restart and hopefully fucking social media never comes back. So, yay, Instagram. Speaking of Instagram and great transitions, Jamie, where can people follow you on his social media? 
absolutely. If you're a twit, um, I'm on Twitter a lot. Coach Beckler at Coach Beckler on Twitter. CoachBeckler.com is uh, where they can find out all about my podcast, Success is a Choice, and my books and our leadership program that we do for sports teams. So, uh, yeah. And if you're watching this podcast, if you look over his left shoulder, you'll see Coach Beckler. Or, yep. Yeah. Right there on and, Instagram and also on Twitter. Um, absolutely. I'm fascinated about this class that you taught. So, I mean, I got to talk more. <laughs> Dude, uh, I told I you, I told you and, in college, I took a rhetoric of slapstick comedy class in one summer. Which was actually kind of fucking hard, but I watched all the genre of slapstick comedies. I don't know if you know that genre either, but I definitely would have rather taken sports movies. Uh huh. You still well, had to show up for class, and you still had to do the work. So there were people that didn't get an A. Like it's an easy A, but like I took a class in college. This was an a, a quote unquote easy A. It was called physical science for the elementary school teacher. So at the school I went to, the college I went to, we only had to take one math or science class the whole four years, only one, the whole four years if we weren't in the math or sciences. And so my senior year, a bunch of us seniors took elementary science or physical science for the elementary school teacher where we build like volcanoes, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. There were three, three grades in there, attendance. We had to do a 10 minute presentation like we were doing it to an elementary class and we had to go to a science museum. That was the three grades in there. Fuck, that sounds fun. It was, it was amazing. We were I would all, have taken all... that over uh, taking calculus. Um, I, I, oh, took, yeah. cal I yeah. took calc and econ my, uh, uh, the fall semester of my third year, and I tore my ACL uh, in like October. And I had uh, knee surgery in over, over Thanksgiving. And uh, man, I did not do well in those finals, crutching to class on painkillers. And, uh, but, uh, the science class I took was, uh, an entomology class and my final paper was basically, uh, there's more protein in five pounds of cockroaches than there is in, like, it's exponential than in five pounds of meat. And they have okay. like a 14 day life cycle. I was like, we can pretty much solve, uh, our food problem. If there was a food problem on the, you know, if you want to create one, but in terms of like protein ready to grow sources, whatever, uh, crickets and grasshoppers will be by far the great, and it's a higher, uh, like a more bioavailable protein than anything else. And, uh, that was my whole paper. And I remember I actually got a decent grade, but I remember my teacher being like, gross, what the fuck are you writing this on? <laughs> and I was like, I'm interested in, in performance and health and how to feed the world and how to eat enough protein. And, uh, I, but yeah, I'm, Hashtag I'm with you. pro protein. Yeah. And I'm pro protein pro pro and uh zombie apocalypse. It helps yep. you in the zombie apocalypse. Yeah, the zombies aren't going to go for the grasshoppers and crickets first. No, so. they're going to go right for your face if you've seen any zombie movie. <laughs> yeah, so you can survive a little bit. Sus sustainable uh, protein. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, eat, eat crickets and, and uh, grasshoppers. Well, cool. Sweet. All, All right, right, Jamie, thank dude, you very much, Coach, man. thank you so much for coming on the podcast, and thanks uh, for tuning in to another episode of Power Athlete Video. Thank you. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. You can find Jamie Beckler on Instagram at Coach Beckler or visit Jamie Beckler. That's J-A-M-Y Beckler.com. Until next time. Bye.